Hello and welcome to the Weekly Stuff Podcast with Jonathan Lack and Sean Chapman. We are here to talk about stuff. Sorry for the break last week. It was also snow related because yeah. I couldn't do it that weekend and then I was planning on asking you, Sean, if you want to do it Monday night and then it snowed and I was like, I'm not even going to ask I'm, yeah. because I don't want to go anywhere. Yeah, I mean, so. in, we would only like push a podcast if there's something that we really desperately needed to talk about, but I yes. don't think that was the case. No, there was nothing like burning. And honestly, it gave me more time to play Fire Emblem Fates, and I can do a really in-depth review of that today. So I'm excited about that. Yeah, and it gave me more time to do the stuff that I've been doing video game side. I have have a more comprehensive story now to tell. It would have been a story in two parts last week. All right. Well, we will. I think that'll be the topic today is our different video game stories. I have something relating to a Wii U experience. You have... Uh, your stuff, I have yeah. Fire Emblem Fates, which is really cool, and I have lots to say about it, because goddamn, if this is not one of the most fascinating major releases I've ever played. It's not all great, but it is all interesting, so we will get into that. Um, but first, let's just do the news and stuff. One other thing right. we'll talk about today is we're going to talk about Deadpool, because Sean saw it. I don't I think it. we need to talk for like an hour about it or anything. No, but no, like it's, yeah, it's a fun movie, but it didn't leave like a really strong impression on me, certainly. And I saw yeah. it like two weeks ago. So. Yeah, so we'll talk about it a little bit. But other than that, we'll get into some news and we'll do those topics. And we're going to record it either tonight or in the coming days. But we are planning on doing our 20th anniversary Pokemon podcast just because... Not something we've ever talked about a lot on the podcast, but Pokemon is obviously a huge part of world culture at this point. Yeah. And a big, I think, entry point into video games for both of us. So mm-hmm. I definitely, yeah, we would be reticent if we did not talk about it. Yeah, like po- like the original Pokemon Red game is like half the reason why I learned how to read a lot or earlier than other kids because I had to read <laughs> to be able to play that Pokemon game. That's awesome. I hadn't thought of it in that re- in that way. You're probably right. That's yeah. amazing. Yeah. So, and I'm sure that's true for a lot of kids. So we will talk about it. Um, but that'll be a separate podcast because Pokemon deserves its own podcast. It's 20 years of. Dominating everything, it gets one podcast. Yeah. Yes. All right, so let's talk about some news. Um, right off the bat, just a couple of little things. I wanted to start. Sean, you might have heard about, uh, over the last couple of weeks, uh, it got trickled out online. But a group of fans called, I think, Team Negative or something like that, they, a couple of years ago, found a 35mm print of Star Wars, the original Star Wars, A New Hope, yeah. before it was called A New Hope, yes. from 1977. And they have spent years restoring it. And this just recently broke into the news because it was kind of quietly released online because obviously they can't sell this. Yeah. Um, although, this is, it's a more hospitable climate for it now, I think, than when George Lucas was running the show. Probably, yeah. yeah but So this, is, uh, this has come out. It's their restoration of a 35mm print of Star Wars. This is kind of similar in ethos to the Star Wars despecialized version that the... Uh, online guy Harmy released about a year ago, which I have watched and I love that version, but that's sort of assembled from the Blu-rays, the DVDs, uh, a little bit of a scan of, I think, a 16mm print. Hmm. Um, the thing that one has going for it is the sound is awesome. It's got audio tracks from around the world. It's got the original 70mm 6 track, lots of cool stuff. But I would say in every other visual respect, this version has it beat, because this is not an assemblage. This is just... The 35mm print of Star Wars restored. And goddamn, it looks so gorgeous. Sean, I've downloaded it. Yes, I pirated it. I own Star Wars in like five different ways. It's yeah. okay. Yeah. And <laughs> um, I just showed you a little bit of it. And pretty jaw-dropping, huh? Yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, obviously, film has a certain visual quality to it. I mean, it has a higher resolution, but also there's that physical sort of grain quality that it has to the image that you can't replace. Or yeah. certainly, like, we can't replace yet digitally. And yeah, like they, I mean, I can't even imagine how much work must have gone into restoring that, especially when you're a team that does not have 
the like corporate backing of someone like Disney to like undertake that and like spend years trying to restore this. That's like really amazing. Yeah, and I mean, I was saying this to Sean. Like, this will probably just be my preferred version of watching Star Wars going forward because it looks this way. Because I do think Disney is going to release the theatrical Star Wars movies at some point in the near future. They have to reach a deal with Fox for the first one. They will do it. There is lots of money on the table. I I really don't doubt it's going to happen. Um, And it might even look better in some respects than what we have here. What it won't look like is a 35mm print just being projected on your TV. Yeah. And I love that about it, because I would rather have a slightly beat-up but more print-looking restoration than something, like, super, super clean. Like, uh, and it's it's just, it's like different strokes for different folks. Yeah, yeah. It's, There's it's, nothing it's, wrong with, no. like, the fully digitally restored look, but yeah. No. But, like, you know, as an example, um, when Spirited Away, the Miyazaki movie, came out on Blu-ray in Japan, and I, it's out on Blu-ray in the U.S., I think it's the same master, but I don't have that one, so can't speak to it, but... When I came in Japan, I imported that. Beautiful-looking Blu-ray. It looks phenomenal. That was one of Ghibli's early movies that used digital processing. So, you know, they just had a great digital version of it, basically, to put out. So, very clean and everything. Looked great. Like, there's no, it's a five-star restoration. There's nothing you can knock it for. But I watched the trailers that were on the disc, and those were just mastered from Telescene, from actual 35mm. And I was just, like, salivating at those, because I've seen that movie on 35 many times. And it's like, that's what I remember it looking like a little more. And so I can't blame Studio Ghibli for restoring it the way they did, because yeah. that was they had a cleaner master. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I would like to have that and a Blu-ray that's just a print that they scanned and threw on a disc. Right. Because there's something about it that it's like, it just warms my heart. Yeah. yeah. But then eventually all of you will die, Jonathan, and then the world will have the digitally restored version. Sure. It's, it's, it's the movement of history. No, it's fine. And, it, and there's nothing wrong with the look of that either. That is how the movie was made and looks. Yeah. It's just something about it I like. But with Star Wars, this is how it should look. It looks phenomenal. And I love that you know Star Wars is weirdly one of the least well-preserved movies ever. Its preservation history is just awful. Yeah. And it's really weird for a movie that important. It has basically no preservation to speak of. But now there are multiple fan projects that can claim to be definitive restorations. Yeah. And are better than anything you can buy commercially that's kind of amazing. Yeah, it's like I said, it's 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 that sort of like real dedication that that's sort of it's jaw dropping, and people do it in film, do it for TV shows, like the the groups that go out to like restore Doctor Who episodes and stuff like that, and stuff I'm personally familiar with. People do it with video games. Any of these fan groups that are going out there and doing this kind of preservation work, that these companies that should be doing it but aren't, like those people are like real like heroes and historians, you know. Yeah. I, uh, kind of a related story. I um, Last week or two weeks ago, Charlie Chaplin's The Kid was released on Blu-ray by Criterion. Right, yeah. I love Criterion, love that movie. It's never gotten a really good home video release, so this was great to finally have. It is one of the best restorations of a silent film I've ever seen. There are parts that look like it was shot yesterday, and I'm not kidding. Like, it is so clear. still looks like film, but, like, they cleaned the hell out of that film, and it looks great. Nice. Um, but the, thing, the, the weird thing with The Kid is that it has a weird history where... It was originally released in 1921. It's about a 60-minute film, though it depended on what frame rate people showed it in. It's, yeah. Because it was, like a lot of silent films, it's shot at 18 and supposed to be projected at 24, which means everything looks a little faster. Mm-hmm. It's undercranking. It's It's actually a technique that was used as recently by George Miller on Mad Max. There's a bunch of shots in Mad Max that are artificially sped up. But anyway, that, that comes from people like Chaplin. So yeah. anyway, the, the length varies. But in 1972, Chaplin, in his old age... Uh, re-released the movie in the theaters. He did this with a lot of his movies, and 
uh, wrote a new film score for it, which is beautiful, but he also cut a little bit out of the movie. And so his release, his preferred version was 53 minutes in, in its final release. And the Chaplin estate will not allow the longer version to be put out. Huh. So the Criterion release just has the 1972 version or that cut, um, that length with that score, which is fine. That is, you know, Charlie Chaplin himself put his fingerprints on that. That's yeah. good. But what I like, what they've done, they can release the other scenes. They just right. can't yeah, put that's them out. That's what I was thinking is they, the loophole you can yeah, have. They, they can't release it all as a package, but they can release some other scenes. So there's a deleted scene section where they show... Just it's like an eight-minute reel of everything that was cut with the little context markers of where they go. And then there's another reel that is all the original title cards because the title cards got cleaned up and replaced for the 72 version. Right. So you could really easily make a fan edit and restore the original yeah, version. Yeah, just like rip those DVDs and pull mm-hmm. out those files. Yeah. Yeah. So I love that they did that because it's a very sly way of like the original version will be restored. It just won't be on this Blu-ray. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. But it's a great Blu-ray. If you've never seen that movie... Holy shit, that's a great movie. Criterion has seven Chaplin movies on Blu-ray now, and I love it. They, that's he's probably I would say he's the greatest American filmmaker. So I love that all of that's out there. But anyway, it just made me think of that because George Lucas was not the first person to mess with his own movies. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah plenty of filmmakers now, have through history. Charlie Chaplin did not add weird special effects into his movies, as but, far as you know. Well, that's actually not even true. In the Gold Rush, his re-release version of that adds a narration where it's that's a silent film and so what he did is took out the inner titles and he just narrates himself over the whole movie it's bizarre now luckily the original release version of that the chaplain estate will allow out and it is on the criterion blu-ray because they're so different but yeah anyway so little tangent there about film preservation but it's nice to talk about every couple weeks yeah yeah so anyway there was that um quick star trek follow-up last week we talked about how brian fuller showrunner of hannibal pushing daisies wonderfalls has been hired to run the new Star Trek series that CBS is producing. And this week, Brian Fuller and, their, and company announced that they have hired Nicholas Meyer onto the writing team of Star Trek. And if you don't know who that is, you should be very excited because Nicholas Meyer wrote and directed Star Trek Two and Star Trek Six, also known as the two best Star Trek movies. Yes. By far. Yes. Especially Wrath of Khan, but An Undiscovered Country is also fucking amazing. Yeah, but Wrath of Khan is, like, not just the best Star Trek movie. It's, like, one of the best, like, sci-fi naval movies ever made. Yes, one of the best sequels ever made. One yeah. of, it's, it's a lot of one of the best things ever made. Yeah, one of the best movie villains. One of the best movie villains. Maybe the best TV movie ever made. One of the best movie deaths ever. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes, lots of good stuff in that. So, this is akin, I think, to, like... J.J. Abrams hiring Lawrence Kasdan to work on Star Wars. Right. And I think Lawrence Kasdan was a reason Star Wars Force Awakens felt so authentic to so many people. Yeah. And I think Nicholas Meyer, that's... He hasn't worked in a while, I don't think, but that's pretty exciting, just that he's willing to do this and that Brian Fuller is serious. He knows his Star Trek, you know. This is... I don't think we're going to be getting, you know... (laughs) white con in this version or yeah anything. yeah no a studio doesn't hire the guy who wrote star trek episode two who's been in yeah. retirement for years like that doesn't yeah. happen yeah no um i actually caught some of into darkness on tv the other day i was huh. making dinner it's a weird movie <laughs> it's also weird to think about like because for me since i don't watch the tv that much i feel like i can't imagine movies being that were made past 2003 being on tv like that just feels wrong it's my mom has TV in her house, and that's where I'm living right now. And so, you know, watch a little bit. I'm trying to convince her to get rid of it because don't need it. Yeah, spent a lot of money. But anyway, was watching a little bit of Into Darkness. Weird movie. For t- kind of forgot. Peter Weller is actually the villain of that. Except right. Khan is actually the villain of that. Except blah 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 blah. blah. What, what part did you see? What part did you drop in on? Well, I watched about an hour because I watched where oh. 
they've let Khan out and he's their friend briefly because Peter Weller's being right. a dick. And then, oh, the big thing I forgot is that they have Carol Marcus in that movie. Yeah. And, yeah. like, there's a whole thing where, like, Peter Weller is her dad mm-hmm. and she's on the ship and is trying to get him not to shoot, but he's going to do it anyway. And then Scotty is on the other. That movie is weird. Yeah. It just, like, sort of bounces around in the middle. Yeah. Yes. Anyway. Um, all right. So that's that. And then a little piece of Batman v Superman shenanigans. Yes. Got to keep reporting on this. So this has been all but confirmed because a ratings agency, I don't think it was in the U.S. This is usually because the U.S. doesn't have a ratings agency. Government one, obviously. Yeah. Uh, MPAA. But I, I forget if it was in Australia or something. One of those countries where these usually come out of. A Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice Ultimate Edition was rated and rated R, likely for home video release. Can't imagine they're suddenly going to release two versions of the movie in theaters. That would be fucking crazy. Yes. It's like saw what Fire Emblem's doing. It's like, we need to release like five different cuts of these movies. <laughs> it's like, go watch Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice Birthright. <laughs> yes. So there's going to be an R-rated director's cut? I don't know. Of Batman v Superman. Yeah. It's weird. What are they doing? There's going to be, there's going to be a live-action R-rated movie that has Superman in the title. That's, that's not. Just, that's fucked up. Do you see where, like, when, like, my feelings about how Man of Steel used the Superman character, there's like a potentially a slippery slope effect there. I feel like we're 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 like slowly approaching this like dystopic future where Superman, the symbol of hope, is now this like the super violent character that like he is sometimes has been portrayed in the comics as well in like alternate universe versions. It's like now that's leaking out into the mainstream, and that's mildly disconcerting to me. I mean, there's so many weird things about this. The weirdest thing to me is just that this would leak before, like a month before the movie's even yeah. in theaters, which means they have a cut, which means, and so close on the heels of Deadpool, a lot of people are thinking, oh, we've got to get in on this R-rated superhero craze, which means they probably assembled it very hastily as they're getting ready to, you know, make the Blu-ray. Spoiler, they work on that before the movie's actually out. So, it's, it's kind of funny on that level. I mean, uh, Zack Snyder has done R-rated movies before, yeah. so it doesn't... It's not out of his wheelhouse, but what I what I hope is that this is like the live free or die hard R rated version. Did you ever see that? I didn't. I only saw that movie in theaters, so I guess okay, not. Okay, yeah, no. Yeah. Live free or die hard. That's the fourth die hard movie, the one that kind of came back after fifteen years. And in theaters, it was PG thirteen. Now, I didn't think that was really a problem because I didn't either. It's it's still it's fine. Like the movie isn't great or anything, but it worked fine without all the f words. But people threw a fit. So on DVD, they released an R rated version. And they just ADR'd in a bunch of Bruce Willis yelling fuck. And it's like, it is so blatant. Like, they didn't even try to mix it in a way where it sounded like a natural part of the soundscape. I hope that's what Batman v Superman is. <laughs> it's just a lot of, like, Batman yelling, motherfucker, as he's thrown yeah. against a wall. And just, yeah. yeah so, or, like, I wonder if it's just going to be that kind of thing. Where I feel like a lot of the times when you have movies that get, like, an unrated or R edition out there that's, like, the uncensored version... And it has a lot of action. I feel usually what it is is that it's just you don't cut away from the action as soon. So it's just like you see more people getting like longer takes of people getting punched in the face and stuff like that. Which I've seen a couple of movies I feel that have done that. And it's just like you you just did this to like say it's like oh the unrated version. When actually the editing in the original version is a lot more impactful. Yes. Because you're like 
cutting away after like right after you punch a dude and it feels more impactful. It's like I don't need to see like hang on some dude like bleeding out of his face for like five seconds and then you cut. You that's know? kind of what the uh, Watchmen director's cut did. Yeah. I don't know if you ever saw that. Yeah, I did see okay. that. Yeah, that's one of the ones I'm thinking of. Yeah, I specifically remember where in the movie there's a scene where Rorschach kills a guy, but in the director's cut. He, like, you fully see the axe going to the dude's head, and then he pulls it out, and the head comes with it and all this shit. Yeah. yeah. I was like, Watchmen is a violent graphic novel. It should have been an R-rated movie. It's not that violent. Yeah, <laughs> and it's like, and there's, with the original version of the editing, even without seeing it, like, those impacts can be a lot more impactful. Yeah. With, like, proper editing instead of just being like, oh, we're just going to show you how gory and violent it is. It's like, no, make me feel how gory and violent it is. And ironically, a lot of the time, that's not just showing me a head explode. Yeah. It's implying that it had exploded. It's a lot more effective. Such as in the film that won't win an Oscar but should, Mad Max Fury Road. Right, yeah. Which I think is rated R, but I would say probably mostly for swearing. There's almost no visual like violence yeah, on it's not. Yeah, it's not like gratuitous with it's that. It's so well cut. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <sighs> Mad Max is up for all the Oscars it should win. It probably won't win any. And the funniest part of all that is that you probably see us on Twitter and stuff too everyone on the planet Earth when they make their fake Oscar ballot says, of course Mad Max should win. Yeah. Everything it's nominated for. And everyone also in their predictions says it won't. Yeah. That just tells you something that I think probably even the majority of Oscar voters who have seen Mad Max would say it should win, but they're probably not going to vote for it because it's not Oscar-ish. Yeah, it doesn't have like the, the political backing behind it. Yeah. It's so funny because it's like, it's so overwhelmingly I think people who actually watch movies support it. Yeah. Because it's Obviously the best movie of last yeah, year. exactly. I don't even know how far you would have to go back to find a movie where the, the consensus is that strong on, mm-hmm. yep, that was the best movie released that year. Yeah. Anyway, so, just kind of funny. Um, yeah, so, we're recording this on Saturday, so we, if this comes out after the Oscars and we're talking like we did, don't know what won, that's why. Yeah. Anyway. Um, Alright, so Sean, I have a question for you. Okay, question for Did me. you finish watching The X-Files? Yes, the new season. The new season. Yes, yes because so, we recorded last episode right before the fifth episode of the reboot came out. And it's a six-episode yes. thing. So. so you've talked about the first four on here. You want to talk yes. about the last two? Yes, which is I don't know how to talk about these last two because they are... Particularly episode five is fucking crazy. Like, it is completely unlike any episode of The X-Files I've seen. Both episode five and six are written by Chris Carter, who's the, the series lead, who's never been... Like, the best episode writer. There's a couple of episodes he's written that are pretty good. Like, I can't remember its name. But there's one in, like, season one or two where uh, Mulder has to, like, negotiate this hostage situation with this guy who might be an alien abductee. And that episode is one of the best episodes of The X-Files. But other than that, Chris Carter is not a great episode writer. He's He was a really good showrunner back in the day. So, like, I was a little bit tentative about these episodes going into it knowing that they're both Chris Carter and particularly like a Monster of the Week Chris Carter episode is usually not very good but I would not call episode 5 a Monster of the Week episode it's basically the plot of the episode is as far as like it almost kind of defies lo- like logical construction in weird ways that like the end of the episode is just like kind of none of this made sense they just kind of lampshade it but the the gist of it is that there's a there's a terrorist attack that happens somewhere in America from, like, a suicide bombing. And then two agents, Agent Einstein and Agent Miller, that are, like, obvious, like, facsimiles of Mulder and Scully are, like, assigned to the case. And then Mulder and Scully both have different ideas about how to communicate with this terrorist who's in a 
coma because he refused to detonate his the vest, but there's another suicide bomber, and so he like got severely injured. So they're trying to like communicate with him somehow. And Scully has all the science ways. Where the episode gets strange is that Mulder's idea, which he then goes through with, is to take magic mushrooms to induce a hallucinogenic state so that he can communicate with the terrorist like on some sort of primal subconscious level. And which features like the most inexplicable and the most amazing part of the whole episode, which is the like middle seven minutes or so. It's just an extended tripping sequence for Mulder. When it feels like David Duchovny brought all of his experience from that Californication show to bear, where he's like walking down the, the hospital and kind of has like a Spider-Man 3 thing of like kind of strutting around and like, hey, hey, and everyone's like, who the, what the fuck is wrong with this guy? Then he ends up, because they're all in Texas, so he ends up at some like line dance and he's line dancing. And then like the ghosts of the lone gunman, which were three really awesome supporting characters from the show that, that died in the last season, show up and they're there and they're all playing poker. And then all of a sudden Mulder wakes up in like a boat with all these people rowing, where the cigarette smoking man is whipping them as they're rowing, and like he's saying, just like, row, Mulder, row, and like all this crazy shit. And then you look in the back, and then there's the terrorist, like being held by his mother in the back, and then Mulder walks up to him and hears him say something in Arabic, and it's just like, and so it actually works somehow. But then they imply that he never actually took magic mushrooms because Agent Einstein just gave him. Uh, like some like like sugar pills or something, and told him that it was, it was drugs, and so this, and but like he so he heard the thing in Arabic, but he doesn't know Arabic, so he has to try to repeat Arabic to like Major Miller, who does know Arabic, and then it turns out that like the terrorists are like planning something at the Babylon Hotel, and then they actually are, and then the day is saved, and then Mulder and Scully are like, what the fuck happened? And then the episode was over. That sounds like the greatest episode of the X Files ever. It's fucking weird. Like I don't know. I wouldn't necessarily call it good because there's a lot of parts that sort of drag in between the insane stuff. But there is something about the conversation that Mulder and Scully have at the end where they're just like, did, like, what happened actually happen? Like, how did, was it just like a bizarre coincidence? Like, how did, like, we, like, I don't know. It's like, fucking that's it. Like, I don't, like, it feels like an episode that's just about logic completely falling apart. And that kind of works, and it's also kind of infuriating, and I liked it. But, like, I don't know if I'd call it a good episode. That was basically, as an outsider looking in, online I just saw a lot of think pieces trying to grapple with what the episode was. Yeah. And I suspected it was more the episode probably didn't know what it was. Yeah, I think so. Like, it's just, like, because it tries a couple of different weird ideas to go into, and then it just sort of is like, yeah, I guess, I don't know, that's it. Like, I'm not going to, like, fully conclude any of these threads that I brought up, because I don't know if there's any possible way to do that. So it's the, it's a surreal experience, so it was an episode worth watching, but not, like, it was the weakest episode, I think, up to that point, until you got the finale, which everyone knew the finale was going to be the worst episode, because the finale is always the worst episode of an X-Files season. The finale's never good. Yeah, I only saw the nastiest vitriol online yeah. about this, and I was really curious what you thought. It's it's not a good episode. It's there's there's a lot of very interesting things about it, but it does because it brings back the all the conspiracy stuff that they had started at the, in my struggle the first episode because this is my struggle too. Since they couldn't even come up with a new title, and basically the main problem with the episode is that they go way 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 too big with it, which is kind of satisfying because shit actually goes down. And the X Files is usually like 
something bad's about to happen, but it never does because it can't. And this, and but that's the right way to do it because you can't do what this episode does, where there's a straight-on like global pandemic where the government has like basically done this thing, where, or the cigarette smoking man at least, the syndicate has done this thing where everyone's injected with like some sort of like. They're not injected. They thought they were injected with alien DNA, but they're not injected with alien DNA. It's like something else that shuts down everyone's immune system, basically. So, like, everyone's like just contracting like insane diseases and all this shit. And it turns out that actually Dana Scully has alien DNA. That's like she's always had alien DNA because she was abducted, abducted in like season one. And they like find her alien DNA, which is a part of the first episode of the season. And then. The solution to the problem is to put alien DNA in everybody because the alien DNA is actually resistant to the thing that is killing everybody. And then in between all of that, Mulder and Cigarette Smoking Man have like an anime scene where Cigarette Smoking Man's like, I just, I hate, I hate humanity now and I just want to destroy the world. And Mulder's like, that's your bad. And it's like, no, I'm not. It's like, yes, you really are. And it's like, this is a terrible scene. So that, that whole side of the episode is not good and, like, nothing really about the episode is very good. Again, I didn't expect it to be, because this is the 10th season of The X-Files. And if everything else about this season has been, like, this is very indicative of a certain side of The X-Files, then you knew that when you got to the season finale, it was going to be complete shit. But there is one part about the season finale that I do really like, which is an aspect of how, you know, this is The X-Files in 2016 now. And I think it says a lot about how the world has changed where in the 90s with the X-Files, the whole thing was that the government seemed kind of bad, but then when you like actually dug beneath the layers, it was, oh no, the aliens are actually what's really fucked up. And the governments and the syndicate and all those people are just trying to find ways to keep us like from going extinct when the aliens come back. And like that's the whole thing. It's like, sure, they're doing bad stuff, but they're doing it for the right reasons. It was that kind of thing. It's not like the most original plot in the world, but it worked out pretty well. But I like now, in 2016, I feel like everybody is so much more cynical now. Like, the world, and particularly America, is so much more cynical now than it was, like, pre-9-11. That it's like, no, the humans are actually what's really fucked up. And we need, like, aliens to come from on high to save us. Like, that's the situation we're in. Is like, no, it's totally flipped. Like, the aliens... We need this alien DNA, like a, a fucking UFO comes down at the very end of the episode. That's another thing. This episode has the fucking balls to end on a cliffhanger. Like, which is really nuts. Where it's like, there's, I feel like there, there's a good chance that the X-Files will come back again because of how good the ratings for this season have been. But they didn't know that but, going yeah, in. But they didn't know that. Like, this, like, you have to be pretty fucking confident to go in and be like, I yeah, we're going to end this on a cliffhanger. The probability was definitely that it would flop, not yeah. that it would succeed this high. But I guess that that's, must have been like Chris Carter just being like, fuck it. Like, I'm just going to put all my cards on the table. It's like, because I, I really want to do more X-Files, so we're just going to end it on a cliffhanger, motherfucker. And it is a big cliffhanger. So yeah, like, the episode's not good, but I do think that... That flip is very interesting from, like, an academic point of view at the very least. So I think yeah. some people there are, like, trashing the episode in a way that there's, like, nothing good about it. And I don't think that's true. Like, I do think the it has a certain commentary on the modern American society that I think is easy to miss because it is very easy to get bored by this episode. So I understand why people aren't talking about that. But I do want to say that... Like, it doesn't matter that episode 5 is kind of weak, though it is insane. And episode 6 is a just a bad episode of TV, in my opinion. 
like we got one amazing episode one really good episode which is episode two a pretty good episode which is episode one and another pretty good episode which was episode four so it's like there were four basic hits and one complete there three basic hits and one like completely knocked that out of the park episode and that is way above and beyond my expectations for what the series could have done and makes me like really optimistic that if they do bring back the x-files that it would be pretty good because this has had like more than half the episodes i like really enjoyed and like with again like one of them i thought was like a great classic episode of the x-files with uh Mulder and scully meet the Wear monster that that alone if all the other five episodes had been terrible that episode alone would have been completely worth bringing it back in my opinion because it's a lot better than what's that episode's better than like the best episode of most tv shows you know so especially like most network tv shows so I, I saw a lot of like online cynicism around like oh yeah like this episode was so bad and like a lot of negativity going to the X-Files from that without people I think it's taking a step back and having like a bit more perspective on like the a very probable scenario was that all the episodes would have been as bad as that finale was which would was basically what my expectation was going in when I heard this was announced I did not expect any of them to be good because season 9 of the X-Files was pretty bad and that movie was just okay the 2008 movie was not amazing and coming back to it for after that long I did not expect it to be great so I think people should instead of like knee jerk reactioning from the the finale and saying like oh this whole season was a mistake I think that's exactly the wrong perspective well, let, to take because some you, people have been saying that let me ask you this because it sounds like the problem with the X-Files this season was it had a kind of dull premiere and a bad finale, and that's yeah. just kind of what the X-Files did back in the day. Yes, exactly. If this had just been a normal 22-episode season, and there had been a normal mix of good and bad Monster of the Weeks padding out those six episodes, but yeah. we would still have that premiere and finale, it probably would have just felt like the X-Files, right? Yes, I think so. Yeah. Okay. And and it's just pro- I think it's more that... And, and you could... I think you could definitely ask whether Chris Carter made the right decision in going with mythology the way he did in these six. Yeah. And I can understand fans who would want to say... If you only have six episodes, maybe just do an anthology style and do Monster of the Week, week stories. Clearly yeah. not his opinion, yeah. which is fine. But it is, I think, expectations changing after you know 15 years off the air. Yeah. And people see six-episode event and they want to just view it as the thing. And X-Files was never a show that hangs together as the one thing. You know, it's yeah, about exactly. the pieces. Yeah, it's about the individual episodes. And it is like, because it does come from that era of tv where that was like the main form of television story whereas now i think you hear like a six episode event and you expect it to be like game of thrones style like it's all like one connected story and really tight or something like that which is as far away from what the x-files is and i am fucking i am still so glad that they did not do that because i feel like that was probably a conversation they had to have was like if we bring this back is it just going to be a really tight like almost kind of like movie style like conspiracy episode is that what we're going to do with like the six episodes we get and if they had done that i think that would have been a huge mistake and so the i think going with this style of a really truncated season that represented a very honest cross-section of what the x-files always was is kind of what i want like because if almost if if like the the Season premiere and the finale had been really great episodes. I almost would have maybe rejected them more because they would they would have not been X Files episodes if they were too good. Like they they you need a certain amount of like the X Files like reaching for something ridiculous and in no way being able to get it, but that like still that that ambition and that drive to tell these stories that nobody in their right mind would ever try to tell. There's something that I really appreciate about that that I've always appreciated about the X Files. Awesome. 
Yeah. Well, let's go ahead and move on. Speaking of being audacious, yes. let's talk about Deadpool a little bit. Okay, yeah. I gave my opinions, and I think we're probably in lockstep. I think it's a really fun movie. I think it's really well done. For what it is trying to be, I think it hits the nail pretty much perfectly on the head. And I definitely respect it for going places movies don't tend to go in this genre. Yeah. What did you think? Yeah, I, I basically agree with that. I think, I think I'm think i a little more down on it than you are. Not in that like I think it's a bad movie. I was just... There are parts of it that I felt kind of bored me a little bit. Especially oh, like, once it starts going back to the origin thing a bit too much. And the second act is messy. Yeah. I, there's... But I do really, I think the main thing about it that makes it work for me that I was, the reason why I was not enthused by the trailers but actually enjoyed the movie as much as I did is that the trailers did not indicate that how dark the movie is. And it's like that side of the movie is what makes the movie work to me the most. Is like if that was not there and it was all Deadpool like doing meme jokes and stuff like that, it would have really fallen flat because eventually that the humor got old in the movie to me in the same way that it does in the comics. But it having like a dramatic story underneath that works really well. And some of those scenes where he's being like tortured and stuff by the, the organization that, that tells him he's going to be a superhero, those scenes are really strong. And like that part of the movie, I thought, worked really well contrasted with going back and being more goofy and cutting between that. Oh, I, I do think, you know, like the middle act gets like when it commits to the flashbacks too much, I think the movie slows down. Yeah. But I love the whole first act where we have. It's all centered around that battle on the freeway, yeah. which is just a lot of fun. But it's flashing back to, as you say, kind of the heart of the movie, which is relationship with Miranda Baccarin and the dark things that happened to him and kind of that back and forth between yeah. who Deadpool is now and how he became Deadpool. And it's a really creative way to do an origin story. And I've never yeah. seen it really done that way, definitely on film. And I think it was kind of a brilliant conceit to do it that way because you kind of get to have your cake and eat it too. Yeah. Because you get to have Deadpool being fun and wacky and Deadpool, but I don't think the movie ever ladles it on too thick. You you get a good balance. Yeah, yeah. I think I think that balance falls apart at certain parts of the movie for me, where it's just like I, I mean, it's the nature of the Deadpool characters. Like you're like shouting out a million jokes a minute, and a lot of them are not going to hit. And any, eventually, any, that rate at which they're not hitting drowns out the ones that do hit to me. Okay. This has always been my thing with Deadpool. That's okay. And I found it consistently funny. This is such a, like, objective sort of yeah. thing at this point. But, like, or subjective thing at this point. Um, but, no, I mean, any movie that has this many jokes packed in and hits as relatively frequently as it does, I think, is impressive. That's yeah. not, obviously, just a Deadpool thing. Just a movie comedy thing to think about. Yeah, I thought there were parts of the origin story flashbacks that got too long for me. Just near the end where we're getting ready for him to get burned and all that. Yeah. Uh, that dragged on a little bit. And then I thought the whole section with him in the house with the blind woman. Mm -hmm. There was some funny stuff in there. I thought there was too much of it. Yeah. And yeah. then once it gets back to he's going to go save his girlfriend. He's going to go fight Francis. And he's got Colossus and Negasonic Teenage Warhead with him. Loved the ending. Loved all of that. Yeah. But um, Although uh, there's, I was super disappointed in the end that because I thought they had this set up so perfectly that the taxi driver dude would come back in at a critical moment with the bag of guns because he leaves the bag of guns behind for the second time, which is like, I feel like that's such a clear, awesome payoff for that joke because you set it up at the beginning where he leaves the bag of guns behind the first time he goes out for the first action scene with the taxi driver character, who's a great little side character in the movie, and then they do it again in the last fight after they make this big deal of getting all these guns. I thought it would, like... How do you miss that opportunity to turn that back around again where, like, the taxi car, like, comes in, like, fucking, like, crashes into Francis or something and he throws Deadpool the bag of guns. It's like, go get him, Mr. Pool, or something like that. Like, how do you not do that moment? 
Well, I can actually tell you. Okay. Because that would be fun. The whole reason why they do it the second time, I watched a long interview with the writers. Uh, they didn't have the budget, and they no. had to cut that. So they turned it into, they couldn't do the climax on the scale they wanted to do it, so they just repeated the joke with the guns, and then they did what they could do. So that's the explanation. Um, oh, well. It's they still, said it was it's, one of the few budget compromises they had to make. It's still an issue with the movie, whether or not they had the budget to do it or not. I know, I'm just saying, I would not be surprised if they worked something like that in, but they said they couldn't do it. Yeah. So, oh well. I still like the climax. I like... What did you think of Colossus in this? I, I really liked the like. I thought they did a really good job with like like honestly with like bringing the Colossus character to the movie because I, has he been in any of the? He might have been in like X Men Three or he's something. He's been I don't in remember. three of them. Has he? Yes. I don't even like. He was in X Men Three definitely. He's in Days of Future Past and I think he's in one other one. Now I only know this because I looked it up. He must have been in, like X Men Origins or something. Like, yeah, I can't. Yeah, like because I. But he barely talks. He's barely in it. Yeah. So like you know having him there like, I mean it's all worth it for at the end of the movie when like he gives the whole hero speech and stuff like that's what you need Colossus because he is a big goody two shoes and he has that Russian accent which works really well with that I think. I just think that was such a perfect and smart counterpoint because you get Deadpool being Deadpool but you also have him integrated into the X Men universe in a way that feels very organic and fun. Yeah. And gives it some heart too because I like that. I mean, it's so funny with Colossus, where he gives the big speech, and the perfect punchline is Deadpool just shoots the guy, yeah. and then Colossus throws up. That's all great. I love Negasonic Teenage Warhead and the little bit of just color she gives to both Colossus and Deadpool in yeah. that weird relationship they all have. I mean, the weirdest part about the whole movie to me is that Colossus and Negasonic Teenage Warhead are, like, in that whole side, the X-Men side, that is the best the X-Men have ever been done in movies. Or By least, far, yeah. Or if, if maybe, like, the best, you want to argue, the closest to the comic books those characters have ever been done. Like, by fucking far. Like, that was, like, you know, them hanging out at the Xavier Institute and stuff, and, like, them, like, chatting and watching TV for, like, a couple of seconds. Those, like, like one or two scenes. I was like, that is the most X-Men I have ever seen in any movie right there. Like, that and, is what the comic books feel like. And Negasonic Teenage Warhead, her costume is like an actual yeah. classic X-Men costume. I mean, so is Colossus's. He's yeah. wearing his X-Men outfit. It's not like I mean, black leather. When I said last week that I think this might be the best X-Men movie, part of what I mean by that is that this is the most X-Men movie. This is by far the most comic booky of all of them. Yeah. Like, you could take the comic bookiness of the other, like, eight movies, combine them, you wouldn't reach Deadpool. No. It is, yeah. And that's the most surprising thing, is that Fox has held this series back from really embracing its comic book side for so many years. That's the thing that amazes me most about Deadpool's existence, because it is unabashedly what it is. It wants yeah. to be a Deadpool movie, and it is. Opening titles on. And those opening titles are fucking brilliant. Yeah, yeah. That is... That, was so funny seeing that like opening night with the big crowd and realizing what they were doing mm -hmm. and just that the again the first image you see of ryan reynolds is him on the cover of people magazine yeah it's it's just great but there is with the x-men thing though there is a weird part and this is like a very personal thing where i i have enjoyed some deadpool stuff but i'm not a fan of deadpool where i think like certain parts of x-men i am a big fan of like as i have read some of those comics where there was a part of me where i was like why can't I just have, like, a Colossus movie? Like, I just want the... Like, because those were, like... And it's a total, like, fanboy personal thing. But it was those couple of times where they cut away completely. And it was just, like, Colossus at the Xavier Institute with Negasonic Teenage Warhead. I was like, I want that movie. Like, that's, that's a fan thing. But I really want that movie. And it's like, I had forgotten because the X-Men movies have been the way they are for so long. I had, like completely lost hope in a way I wasn't even cognizant of of there ever being a comic booky X-Men movie I was like 
It was just this weird revelation of like, God damn it, why can't Hugh Jackman's Wolverine be in this fucking movie like at the Xavier Institute with like giving Cyclops shit and hitting on Jean Grey? Like, why can't that it be that version of that stuff? Yeah. God damn it. No, I love all that about it. And I love that, you know, I think it's very telling and I don't think it's in any way a coincidence that this is the most comic booky and just kind of far and away the most successful X-Men movie. Yeah. yeah. Like at a certain point, like, I don't know if it's going to cross the worldwide gross of Days of Future Past, but I think it's already crossed the domestic gross. And it's, that's amazing. That's just amazing yeah. that you can, like, you know, our respective interests in the character aside, just that there is clearly an audience that was rabid for this. Yeah. And it crossed over into the mainstream in a big way. And you can see why. I think this movie has a lot of heart. I think it's yeah. got so much passion. That's one of the things I just look for in movies. Like, clearly, every single person involved in this movie was having the time of their life making it. Yeah. And that carries over. Even if a joke you don't find that funny... Ryan Reynolds is having such a fun time doing it. You still have a smile, I feel like. Yeah. And Ryan Reynolds is so good in this. Yeah, because again, it's it is not like he's good at delivering the jokes, but what makes it really work is that there's always that, like, the character underneath that, which yeah. is the best Deadpool stories have that, and the worst Deadpool stories just use him to say, like, chimichangas 500 times, because that's apparently the word chimichanga is really funny. I don't know if you heard that, Johnson. Well, here's the thing. They only use it once in the movie. Yeah, they... And I think they actually use it in a good moment. Like Sure. Well, it's fine. It's like they don't overdo it. They, they, they don't the... overdo it, but it also made no sense to me why he would say that there, other than I know that's the thing that Deadpool says, because Deadpool says it. But that's the kind of movie this is. It's sure, okay for yeah. me. They did have a very funny... I saw this at the Draft House, and they do their pre-roll where they find funny clips. They had a very funny clip of a, apparently, Chimichanga song that was written for Deadpool sure. across a bunch of different cosplayers doing the Chimichanga dance. That made me laugh very hard at... Not only does Deadpool love his chimichangas, but his fans love this chimichanga dance. It's weird. Sure, yeah. Deadpool fans will always mystify me on some level, because I don't know if I love anything as much as they love Deadpool. Yeah, that was like, Gus Sirola from Rooster Teeth had a really great tweet. I don't know if you saw yes. it, like, around this movie came out. This is like, I'm so glad that this Deadpool movie is doing so well, because now we'll finally get to see some Deadpool cosplayers at conventions. <laughs> it's yes. like... Is if you have ever, like, been to a convention or seen photo galleries from conventions or, like, been on Reddit for, like, around a Comic-Con, like, you will see a million fucking pictures or GIFs of Deadpool cosplayers, which some of it is funny. Some of it, like, as with Deadpool, some of it is funny, then it gets old real fast. Uh, speaking of, like, cosplaying and stuff, I think Deadpool's suit in this, one of my favorite comic book movie costumes ever. Yeah. Goes right up there with uh, Daredevil Season 1 black suit. Yeah. Of just like, it just is what it is, and they just make no bones about it. I love that they don't, they have Ryan Reynolds out of the mask briefly in the middle part where he's hanging around at home, and I think that works because he's just, yeah. it's kind of funny he's in the suit except for the mask. Um, but other than that, he's in the suit. Like, there's a lot where you're just not seeing Ryan Reynolds' face, and yeah. it works. And it's kind of like, we haven't really had that commitment to the suit since Sam Raimi's first two Spider Man movies. Yeah. Spider Man movies. Um,. Where, you know, Tobey Maguire's under the mask, and then in starting in three, he's out of it most of the time, and that carried through to the Andrew Garfield movies. Yeah. So, yeah, I liked that about it. Uh, I think the voice Ryan Reynolds chooses for Deadpool is funny, because he keeps Deadpool likable the whole movie. And it would yeah. be very easy for Deadpool just to be a dick and you not to like him. Yeah. He's, he's, a, he's a total asshole, but he's kind of a lovable asshole. And I like that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And then, as you talk about the dramatic core, I think legitimately the relationship between him and the Miranda Baccarin character is one of the better romances we've had in a comic book movie in a while. Yeah, I mean, because it's like, which is not a very high hurdle to no. overcome, but it is like, 
it is amazing how far it goes when, like, you can actually just show two characters having a relationship. Like, yes. even if it's only for, like, a ten-minute sequence of the movie. Like, that does so much to being like, okay, these characters actually love each other. Yeah. Like, that's like, even if it's, like, played for laughs, it's like, yes, like, 100%. It's like, you they can't... You can't just have, like, Thor and Jane from the Thor movie just be like, they love each other because they looked, like, dramatically at each other at one point halfway through the movie. Which just feels like, that's not just a superhero movie problem. That's, like, action movies and, like, any sort of movie that, like, throws in, like, a random romantic subplot because it's something that's like, oh, this will appeal to the female demographic or something like that. Whatever reason they feel compelled to do it. It's like, you have to show these characters in a, like... In a relationship mode at some point, if that's the level of relationship you want us to, like, invest in them, you know? No, and it works. Like, that love montage is one of the best scenes in the movie. It's really funny where they're going through the seasons. Yeah. And there's the pegging joke in there, which yeah. is, is kind of funny. Too. I love that you can just show that casually kind mm-hmm. of in the movie now. Um, but overall, like, it it works, as you say, because most of it is, yeah, Thor and Jane have met each other for a total of, like, two days in their history. This is these people have a relationship, and that's a tough thing to show in a movie. I thought they found a really clever way to show yeah. it. Um, yeah, so I think this is a relatively focused superhero movie. It gets in, it gets out. I think it's slightly too long, but even then, it's a hundred minutes where it could have probably been ninety. So it's not yeah, yeah. a huge problem or anything. Um, I, I just found it very refreshing. Like I'm not ever going to say this is an A plus, one of the greatest superhero movies ever made. For the last few years and the time in which it was released, definitely one of the most original and unique and kind of fun and refreshing ones for me. Yeah. And it's definitely something where if you are a big fan of Deadpool, like you've already seen the movie, so whatever, but you should see the movie. But also, if you're someone who doesn't know much about the character, I think the movie will work on you a lot better than it does for someone like me who is familiar with the character and tired of the character. Because some of like what the movie does brings out the best in the character, and I can really appreciate that. But there is, like with that chimichanga thing... There's, like, a personal exasperation around some of that sort of meme side of Deadpool that's, like, never going to be good again for me in any way. Like, it's always going to make me eye-roll because I'm, I've am i seen that too many times. Like, I've, I'm over that side of that character completely. But if you are coming fresh to the character, that stuff is funny the first couple of times you see it. Like, yeah. it's, it's the, the nature of that kind of humor. Yeah. Um, also, best joke in the movie is Colossus is dragging Deadpool away and says, we're taking you to Professor X. And he says, which one, McAvoy or Stewart? The timeline is so confusing these days. That, I love that they just were able to just do a fucking drop the mic joke on the whole series. Yeah. And just reference, yeah, our continuity makes no fucking sense. Yeah. The existence of this movie, we don't know when it happens, when it takes place in the timeline, how it fucking works with X-Men Origins, where he was in the 70s and got his mouth shown. You know, it's, I love it. Yeah, uh, they, they definitely make good use of the breaking the fourth wall side of the yes. character. Sure. I just, I love that X-Men Origins Wolverine has, in like five different ways, in this movie, in Days of Future Past, in the Wolverine, been just erased. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's like, it is pretty like comprehensive from all sides of the X-Men movies. They're just like closing and being like, no trace of this can be left. We're going to make like a saber-tooth movie to be like 110% sure that contradicts everything. Oh, you're like, forgetting destroying all of it. You're forgetting they they are planning to do a Gambit movie because Gambit is in that one. Oh fuck, I yeah. didn't know that. And uh, and so they got to do the, the last really big pieces. They got to do Gambit to erase that right, side. Of yeah, it. Gambit's okay in that movie. It's it's kind of funny because the two best parts of X Men Origins Wolverine are Deadpool and Gambit, and Deadpool is good for the five minutes he gets to talk, and then yeah. he becomes a weird CGI monster, and you can just feel Ryan Reynolds wanting to kill himself. 
but yeah, so and they made good reference to that in here. So yeah, yeah, the fourth wall stuff worked just because this is it kind of came at a perfect time for this series when the series is just at such a weird point. Yeah, and Deadpool feels right, but yeah, especially with like X Men Apocalypse like being right on the yeah. horizon. I mean, that's the thing. I think there's a very good chance this will do better than X Men Apocalypse winds up doing. Yeah, how probably. is this Deadpool is doing the best of all the X Men movies? What are they? What lessons are they going to take from this? Because clearly the whole industry is watching. I worry they're all going to just think, oh, more R-rated superhero movies. That's not why this did Yeah, well. that's exactly the wrong, wrong lesson. Way to take it. Yeah. But I do wonder, like, I, I think the lesson for the X-Men people it should point to is more solo movies, kind of, or team-up movies, where you're not just trying to do all the X-Men at once, but pick something and, like, I don't know if Colossus needs his own movie, but you could do Colossus and Friends and have a couple a smaller focus yeah. and, and have something you can more clearly market because when you're marketing an X-Men movie, you're kind of just marketing explosions because yeah. there's nothing, there's no, like Days of Future Past had a great core to market because it had the crossover thing. Yeah. But Deadpool, you had the character of Deadpool and he's very marketable. People love him. You could get him out there. You could build a good marketing campaign. It makes sense. And so like when you say, when you do a Colossus movie, oh, that's a bad idea. I think you could yeah. really make something out of that. I mean, absolutely. I think the lesson to learn is, like, the lesson that superheroes have been learning ever since we started making superhero movies is that stuff that sticks closest to the spirit of the comic book is the stuff that works the best. Like, all of the best superhero movies feel like they are comic book movies and they're not like the original 2001 X-Men movie that feels like the exact opposite of a fucking comic book. Like, yes, you have all these super-powered characters in there, but it's like the entire movie just feels... Just like red-faced embarrassed about everything about it. It's like, oh god, we have a character in this movie that, that shoots lasers out of his eyes. And oh, there's a character that brings lightning. That's just ridiculous. This is, this is just, I can't. We have to put everyone in black leather to make it seem like there's something serious about this movie. Because the color black is serious, I guess. And so is very tight-fitting leather. I don't know. Yeah. No. It's, it's definitely, that series has come a long way with a very weird history. Yeah. But I do think, like, taking Fox taking a good look at what made those X-Men comics work and what made those characters work originally, and, and that, like, that original tone for the X-Men, or, like, not necessarily the original, but, like, even going back to, like, the Claremont-era X-Men, which is the more popular one, like, finding that balance between the light side, the lighter side of the characters and the darker side of the characters, that's what's really important. And they've always erred, even in, like, they've lightened it up, but they've always erred too far on the dark side of the X-Men, which is not... You need that contrast. You need their like weird daily life at the Xavier School to be like ridiculous and funny and weird and like Colossus in his like X Men gear, like fully like organic steeled up, like sitting down eating cereal. Like you need that. Like that's a core part of what makes the X Men work. And those movies have never gotten that side right. All right, so Sean, let's go ahead and move on to our main topics for the evening, which is just video game stories. Yes. So I'm going to start, and then I'm going right. to throw it to you, and then we're going to end with some Fire Emblem talk. Uh, Wii U shenanigans. So, a couple of years ago on this podcast, when I bought my Wii U, we had the Jonathan Sets Up Wii U Theater, which is still one of my favorite just things we've ever done, where it was yes. me just explaining the process of transferring my Wii data to my Wii U, and what that was, and you asking me baffled questions at every set step. Yes. Okay. Part two. Okay, great. I bought a new Wii U. Why? Now, let's explain. There's a couple okay. reasons. I had explained before that my Wii U did not have enough storage for anything. Oh, right. Okay. And I there was a little stuff. Now. Yeah. Yes. So I explained that a couple weeks ago on the podcast. With the new Smash Bros. DLC, I had officially run out of where I couldn't run my Wii U games off the hard drive. 
So I had to run them off of the flash drive I had in there. Really was not fast enough to reliably run Smash Bros. I was worried I was going to lose data. So I had a couple options. I could buy a hard drive and attach that and make that work. But it's not as easy on the Wii U as it is on like the PS4 or Xbox One. Yeah. So that's a hassle. Also, I don't need like a terabyte. I need like 30 gigs for my Wii U. So anyway, uh, so I thought, well, I could just buy a new Wii U because my little brother, Thomas, doesn't have one. He doesn't live with me right now. Right. So he lives at college, and he wants to play the new Zelda game. He has some stuff he'd like to play on the Wii U, and it's hard to, like, loan out, you know, because it's a console. So I was like, you know, fuck it. I got the money. I'm just going to do this because I like my Wii U, and I kind of want it to last. And then Thomas can have this one. It'll be just a nice gift for him. So that's kind of why I did it. If I had no one to give my other Wii U 2 I would not have done this okay. but this was like you know this will be fun we can play like Mario Kart and Smash Bros online and stuff. okay good so so then my like monstrous me that I created will now live with Thomas it, no it lives with me I okay okay, okay no I still see it when I launch okay great I just wanted to make sure that he was still out there still out there like haunting people's nightmares yes absolutely right. haunting many nightmares um, yes, yeah, so I got, I just ordered on Amazon. There was a, I think I went through a third party seller. So I, cause Amazon now charges tax in Colorado and I understand at some point you've got to charge, charge sales tax online or else no one's collecting sales tax. Yeah. Still annoys me a little bit, but anyway, that's, I guess a political discussion. Yeah. But anyway, Amazon's collecting that, but through third parties, you don't have to use sales tax. So didn't have to have tax on a big purchase. That's nice. And, uh, bought the Mario Kart eight bundle because that was the only one I could get. Sure. I don't need it. I own Mario Kart 8. But this way I was able to give my copy to my brother. So that's nice. Because you can't do digital game sharing on the Wii U. Right. <laughs> so anyway, um, that's the whole thing. So I got it. The, the black deluxe set. They don't even sell the white basic one anymore. So the, the upside to this also is that now all my three consoles I have on my shelf, they're all black. So that's nice. The Wii U really stuck out like a sore thumb because it was bright white. And right. my PS4 and Xbox are jet black. So anyway. Got my black Wii U. It's got 32 gigs. So plenty of storage for what I need. I can't really buy any digital games, but I don't do that with my Wii U anyway. I would just buy disc-based games anyway. And the Wii U has that advantage where it actually runs the discs off the discs. You don't have to install. Right. So there's almost, I think, an advantage to just get the discs if you want a Wii U. There's really no reason not to. Um, But anyway. So, but because of all this, you know, if I was buying a new PS4, let's say. It's very easy. Just buy your PS4. You hook it to the internet, and then you're like, you log in. It's like, what games do I want to download? This, 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 and this. You know? Yeah. And you, yeah. you just use your login, and all your games library is right there. You just have to download what you want. Not how it works on the Wii U. Oh, no. Now, I have done this on my 3DS twice, because I went from a normal 3DS to the XL when it came out to the new 3DS when it came out. So I'm used to the, you have to have both systems on hand and transfer them. It's more cumbersome when it's a full console. I would imagine, yes. So what you have to do is you have to get both Wii U's hooked up. Now, you don't necessarily have to have them HDMI in because you're just running off the game pads, but you okay. do have to have you know two Wii U's next to each other, which yeah. is bizarre enough. So I had one Wii U kind of on top of the other one, black and white, and uh, had them plugged in, started the game pads, had to do a full system update for the new one, which happened, so that's fine. So I finally got through that. You can't even like start by saying transfer. You have to set up a profile on the system before you can do any of the transfer. So do that. Create a, I have to create a me to do that, so I just created a default me. I think I was an old black woman. Was the one I just grabbed and like just pick a face. So I did the, that. The Wii U, it's, it's just it was like subconscious. You just like yeah, it's the true self. Is yes, that me? Absolutely. So I did that, and then you go into settings, you dig through settings, and you find the transfer Wii U consoles, and then you have to select one as the 
source console and one is the target console. Okay. So my old white Wii U, I say, that's the source console. New black Wii U, that's the target console. So do that. Then you have to line up the gamepad. So you have to have a table. You have to have a table, so something even. You put the gamepads down flat on the table, and you have to have them slightly off-center so they're talking to each other through an infrared sensor on the front of the Wii U. Because the two gamepads have to sense each other. What the fuck? What are you talking about, Jonathan? What the fuck? Why? I don't... It's a fucking fucking touchscreen with buttons on it. And why do they need to... It's fucking useless. Why do you need to do that? I don't know. Did they think you stole someone's Wii U and it was like, well, you only stole the Wii U and not the tablet, you idiot. Because you need the tablet and the Wii U to steal someone's data. Like, what the fuck is that? I don't know. So you have to align them like... Okay, so let's say... I have my 3DS here. You have your 3DS... Like, if you had your iPhone, yeah. you would put your iPhone, like, off-center. They would look like that, Sean. So okay. flat, like that. Now, the downside of this is I have to do... You have to keep them like that through the entire process, which took me over an hour. Which means you can't, like, pick it up and touch it. I have to have the stylus and kind of lean over on the table and tap everything when I had to do it. So fucking what are you talking... There's no way that's what it is. That's it's fucking insane. Nope, that's what they need. And, like, they are actively reading off one another. Like, when one of the consoles will restart to do some update process, the other one will say, like, lost connection to the other gamepad. And it'll wait for the restore to, like, go through again. So, anyway. So, that's what's going on. So, I start on the source console. And, so, my white console. That's the one that's going to transfer the stuff over. Yes. That's your setting okay. the whole thing. Yeah. You say, do you want to transfer to this gamepad? The gamepad's match. You have to put in a code on each of them that it gives you, like... Uh, no, no, what it was is so, okay. So, again, I'm on the table. Let's say this I have here, Sean, this is my white Wii U. So, okay. I'm pointing to the, the device nearest to me. And your iPhone there, which is catty corner to it, yeah. is the new black Wii U. So, it gave me a code on the white Wii U. I had to walk to the other side of the table and input the code on this one because I couldn't lift it off the table because it wouldn't let me. <laughs> so, well, I just, like, is it ultimately when you actually get to start transferring stuff, is it just transferring it over the internet? No, we're just, we'll get there, Okay, Sean. okay, okay. We'll there. I'll let you continue before I start yeah. asking more, like, in-depth It questions. has to go onto the internet to verify things. So let's go to this next step. On the source okay. console, it asks you to enter your Nintendo Network ID information. So confirm that's you, and then you can tr- it'll transfer your licenses and stuff over to the other Wii U. Okay. I'll tell you how it does that in a minute. But anyway, so to do that, it says, okay, tra- sign into your Nintendo Network ID. And I'm thinking, you never actually have to log on to your Wii U because it's hard-coded onto the thing. So I was like, I don't know my Nintendo Network ID. Yeah. So I did some guesses on, like, my common passwords and got it. So finally I'm in, and then it says, there are other Nintendo Network IDs associated on this Wii U. Do you have their permission to transfer? I, you <laughs> never asked me, Jonathan. And this is the funny part. What if you had like made purchases and shit? It just transfers everything. And you don't have to enter the other passwords. You don't have to do any of that. It's just like, honor system, is this okay with your friends? Yes. <laughs> so it's like... If I bought a new Wii U and I desperately wanted my network Nintendo Network ID and my little monster I made, I could sneak into your house and just steal everything because that's the only way to get it over is to just take everything with it. Yeah, you'd have to be really quiet for like two hours and line up all your shit and plug yeah. in a new Wii U. And yeah, it's just it's good to know. I just I was just wondering. all right. And then at that point, it starts the process of transferring all the necessary data onto the SD card in the console. Which you will then insert into the other Wii U later okay. to transfer it. So it's exactly like the 3DS process, but again, it's weird when you're doing it on your Wii U because your Wii U isn't a 3DS. It's yeah. not a portable system. The SD card is not used for any storage except Wii specific stuff, but I guess it uses it to get the license information and puts it on there. Okay. 
But it doesn't transfer like the games and apps. Those will be re-downloaded, theoretically, unless you have a fail-safe, yeah. which I did. So Does we'll that around. like transfer like your saves? Like anything that's yeah. like small data gets put onto the SD card? Uh, mostly. Other, yeah, yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Okay. Okay, so okay. I'm actually not sure because I had... Okay, I'll, I'll go back. So I had, before I started this process, I thought, I, I kind of read about it a little bit, and it looked like what I could do is instead of having to re-download things, if I had them on external storage, I could just put the external storage in the other device when it was done, and it would recognize it, and then I could transfer it. Okay. So I just put, I threw everything on that flash drive I had. So, and then at the end, I would just put the flash drive in the other system, transfer it, and then be done. Okay. So my saves were on that, so I don't know how it would work if that wasn't the case. Okay. But anyway, it did, and I... I didn't even know what SD card I had in there because it says you need an SD card that is this big, and I'm like, hope it is. Press it, okay. <laughs> like, I don't know. I don't remember what SD card. Like, I've never there. opened that fucking thing up. Yeah, because and then I realized when I finally took it out when it was ready for me to take it out, it was the SD card from my old 3DS that I just <laughs> thrown in there when I was ready. Anyway, so yeah, it was a two gigabyte card. I've never bought a fucking SD card. I just get them I when mean, I buy yeah. devices that come with them. So anyway. It starts the process, and it does the entire animation where you have, like, Pikmin and Nintendo characters. And it, I had told you about this when I did the transfer Wii to Wii U. Right. It's even more elaborate if you're going Wii U to Wii U. It is like a little movie that happens where there's all these little, like, they're not even Pikmin this time. They're just random, like, amorphous blob characters. Okay. And they're running around, like, trying to get the data, and they're trying to bring it to these spaceships that launch and all this stuff. And there's a whole dramatic ending where one of them doesn't get on the spaceship, but he has some data oh. left. And I'm thinking, are you going to fuck me and erase some of my data because you didn't get on the ship? <laughs> but no. Then another one, like, jumps and, like, rescues him and then jumps up into the spaceship. It's, like, really elaborate. And the whole time I'm thinking... So you will animate this whole, like, little movie for this process, but you won't, like, create a fucking, like, integrated online ID system? Yeah. At a or certain you, point. At the very least, you won't realize that there is no fucking reason for my Wii U gamepads to be staring at each other like a dead lock on my table. Like, what the fuck is that part about? I don't if know. If you're just using the SD card to transfer stuff. Because sometimes it's like, is there some like crazy fucked up way that's like transferring data like wirelessly to the gamepad that's in using this like IR blaster to us like, this is what the account is or something. It's like, but that doesn't seem like that's possibly what it's doing. Okay. So anyway. What the fuck? Finally, it tells me it's done with the sourced console. Take the SD card out. Put it in the black Wii U. Now we work from the black Wii U. And now I can undo this with my gamepads. And yeah, I can just okay. hold my black gamepad, which was nice finally. So do that, and it goes through, and it transfers all the data, and we're, we're good. Now, throughout all of this, we have to back up a little bit. Okay. I'm scared of one thing, which is that when I bought my... Okay, let's say you buy a bundle for your PS4 or Xbox One, and it's like the Uncharted bundle, or the um, for Xbox, like a Destiny bundle, or a Halo bundle, or something. Usually, it won't come with the physical game. It'll come with a code, right? Yes. Like my Assassin's Creed Unity Xbox One bundle just came with codes for the Assassin's Creed games. And uh, so that's how they usually do it. Or the physical game, they'll do that. What Wii U does is extra weird. They pre-install the game and don't give you a code. It's just pre-installed on the platform, which seems okay, like extra yeah. work to me. Yeah, me too. Yeah. And also, like, well, what if I don't want it? What if I just want to, like, sell that code or give it to a friend? It's Can't too bad, it. Jonathan. Yeah, You anyway. can't do that. This no. is Nintendo. But what I was worried about, because, and then again, it was kind of fortunate because then I can just give my copy to my brother and he can play Mario Kart 8 and we don't have to buy an extra copy. So that's nice. But I was worried through the whole thing because it kept saying all data on the systems will be erased and replaced with the new data. So I'm like, does that mean they're going to get rid of my Mario Kart 8 pre-install on here and I'll have right. no way to get it back? <laughs> it didn't. 
okay. at first. Wait, okay. <laughs> okay, so I get it all on there. It transfers the data. I put in my flash drive, and I see all my games pop up, and Mario Kart 8 is there on the screen, and I, and I saw in the instructions later that it said, specifically, it won't delete pre-installed content. That's, like, tied to the console, so it won't go away. Okay. Also means you can't transfer it if you want to get another new Wii U. That just lives on the console. So anyway, that's oh, right. Yeah. Thing. So yeah. Catch twenty two. Catch twenty two there. But uh, so I put in my flash drive, which had all my other games, and I was starting to transfer all that content over. And I just said I selected everything and said move to the internal storage. And then it said there is some redundant data. It'll overwrite the existing data. And I saw it was for Mario Kart eight. And it's like oh, that's probably just I have an existing save for Mario Kart eight. There's probably like a dummy save on the new system. That's what it's talking about. That's fine. Sure. Because I have my Mario Kart 8 DLC in my saves. Okay, so yeah. That's what I was transferring. Yeah, yeah. It makes sense, right? Yes. I'm, okay, so do that. Finishes all the transfers. It takes like an hour, transfers everything. I come back. I start this process at like 8 p.m. It's like 11.30 now. God. Mario Kart 8 is missing. What it did is it, it deleted Mario Kart 8 and just put on the DLC in my saves. That's what it meant. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. <laughs> Wait, so it wasn't like you had a like version like of like Mario Kart 8 like a digital version or something and that that got transferred and like just like destroyed the old one. It was just the DLC in your saves. Yeah. And apparently they're like, "Well, these things can't possibly live together. Who would want both Mario Kart 8 and the DLC for which it is necessary to have Mario Kart 8 to play. Only a loser would want to have both of these things at the same time. You just want to look at the Mario Kart 8 DLC data on your fucking hard drive screen. You don't want to actually play it, right, Jonathan? So my Mario Kart 8 install is just gone. And at this point, I'm like, I was just fully expecting I'd lost it. And yeah. so I, find, I went into the Wii U eShop and I said, maybe it'll allow me to re-download it or something. And I went in and I went to like Mario Kart 8, the like purchase screen, didn't allow me to re-download. I'm like, well, oh. fuck, let me look. And so I'm like, and then I finally found, I didn't even know this was a screen on the Wii U eShop, but it does say your downloads and it'll show you oh. through your recent downloads. It wasn't there, but it oh. did, under your Nintendo Network ID account. But then it says this console, which is a separate tab, and that one just had Mario Kart 8. And Fucking I could, from what? there, I could download the whole game again. What do you mean, this console? What does that even mean? <laughs> it means that because it was pre-installed, that game is and its license is tied to the hardware, not my Nintendo Network ID. What the fuck? So That's I can insane. never, that install can never be transferred from that Wii U. Ever. Under like, any circumstances. I just tried to imagine, like, using my PS4 and going to my library and having, like, I'm in my account. Here's my library. I can't find this one game. Oh, it's in the console tab over here. That's like, this isn't tied to things that I bought. This is tied to this physical piece of hardware for reasons that mankind can't possibly decipher. What the fuck? The moral of the story is, I'm a really good fucking brother. Because I went through all that, Thomas, so you don't have to, and you can play fucking Twilight Princess HD. God damn it. The moral of the story is Nintendo better get its fucking shit together for the NX, because if yes. any if anything like that is on the NX, that's That's it. Yeah, that's like You've got oh to show God. up ready for game time this time. I mean you've got to. Yeah, if if anybody has to like make the two peripherals that have no reason to do this stare at each other for hours with like, you being unable to move them, like that's that is the that is probably the part that is the most insane to me because there's literally no reason for it. Like I can't think of why like why you would have to have both the console and the gamepad for that console. They're also both connected to the internet. They're yeah. on the same Wi-Fi network. Like there's so many other ways you can do that. It does not make sense. Yeah. Like the 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 3DS doesn't have to do that. You don't have to have them facing each other. 
Yeah, like it's there's because the only thing I can think of that it's doing is is that it's like proof that like okay, like both of these things, their IR signals are like recognizing each other, but there's if you have both of the consoles, there's no reason for that to be there. You don't need this like super extra authorization of like I have the console and the Wii U gamepad, and I don't have, like, the Wii U gamepad. I didn't grab it for, like, two seconds to do it really quick. It's like you have to be authorizing it for the entirety of the transfer. Like, what kind of madness is that? It's so weird, because I feel like I only talk about the Wii U as a system when I have funny stories like this. I do obviously love the system. There's a lot of games I love playing on there. When you're just day-to-day using it, I think it's a pleasure to use. You go anywhere near the back end, and it's like... Who invented this? It's not just that it's out of date. No one has ever done yeah. game stuff like this. It's, ever. It's like that like data transfer was a thing that the human species has never thought of before. And Nintendo thinks I mean, they're like inventing it. Let me put it this way. If you had a GameCube and you needed to buy a new GameCube, all you would need to do is take your memory card out of one GameCube, put it in the other GameCube, you're done. Yeah. That's it. Well, here's the difference, Jonathan. The GameCube can't connect to the internet. And because the GameCube can't connect to the internet, that means it's very simple. But if something can connect to the internet, that means we have to construct arbitrary processes for you to have to go through. It's, it's just, it just makes sense, Jonathan. And, you know, it's not like this. Uh, the other systems don't have problems with internet connectivity. God knows the Xbox One was down all week and no one was talking about it. Sure, stuff yeah. like that. But... This is just on such another level, and it's the biggest hurdle they have to overcome for the NX. Because otherwise, the Wii U, I think, is a very respectable piece of hardware. Runs well, got a lot of good games. Technically, those games run better than most games on the other systems. A lot of good things about it. But that is, this is the time we live in. They have to figure it out. Yeah. And it seems like they are. They're doing this new connected, their Nintendo Network ID will convert to a more permanent online ID that'll save your licenses and stuff and I wouldn't be surprised if in a year the Wii U has a firmware update where this transfer process would be a thing of the past but it is surprising yeah although like I do want to since you just mentioned that Xbox One thing like to be fair to Microsoft like that happened because a hacker group that hit them with a really hard DDoS attack the saddest thing in the world would be if hackers that did a DDoS attack on Nintendo's (laughs) network like that would be for everyone involved. That would just be so pitiful. It's like it's like you would barely even have to do anything. Like he's like, look at their fucking network, and the structure falls apart. Hacker just yeah. goes home disappointed, and it's just like, why would you? Why would you beat me up? Like, what are you doing? Like, it's like beating up like a kid who's like three feet shorter than you are. Like, what's the, why? Why? Nobody would even buy That's funny, because Nintendo does have their shit together on the internet in some other ways. Like, they were way ahead of the curve on digital downloads with the 3DS and Wii U. Sure. And, like, preloads, I think they had them first on the 3DS. And the one, I did this for Fire Emblem Fates, the most seamless preloading experience I've ever done. It was, it was so nice, and it just worked. And I don't know how you can do that and not this other stuff. That's where it gets weird. Yeah. That they get... it's And it's... You know, if you actually look into the corporate structure of Nintendo, that's because literally the people doing this side of it get it, and this side of it, it's just so truncated. Yeah. But anyway, it's... It'll be... It will, it'll be an interesting year to see if Nintendo can overcome this stuff. Yeah. I'm fascinated by... I I hope that at least there's one more crazy Wii U story at some point you will have to bring to us. Oh, I know. So just anyway, to unlock the depths of that console. Yep. And then I haven't really even played this Wii U because I've been playing Fire Emblem on my 3DS. Right. But uh, we'll do that because there's like Pokemon tournament coming out. Well, luckily for you, you can really play Mario Kart on that console. Like you can really play it on that console. But that's yes. it. Yeah. All right, Sean. What have you been playing? Okay, I've been playing over the past two weeks, Jonathan. I have played. Three games. 
and I was only expecting to play one of them. So I've just got I have I'm just going to go through the process of me playing these games to reach I'll just say now the game I'm playing right now that I'm enjoying a lot is Digimon Story Cyber Sleuth. I was in no way expecting to be sitting here right now and saying that. So this is a this is a story about how I got to this point that I'm playing Digimon Story Cyber Sleuth and having a really good time with it. Okay. So let's go back, turn back the clock. Two weeks. I think it was literally like the day after we finished recording the last podcast we did. I was sitting around, didn't really have a game to play, and I was thinking, like, what should I be playing? Because it's sort of a slow time. I don't have a 3DS, so I can't play Fire Emblem. And I don't have a gaming PC, so I can't play XCOM 2. So there are two games out that I really want to play, and I have no means of playing either of them, and I don't want to spend the money to try to get the means to play either of them. But I had purchased a while ago for very cheap, for like $5, Tomb Raider Definitive Edition for the PS4. Awesome! That I, I wanted to play, because I knew you really liked it, and particularly Rise of the Tomb Raider, the sequel, is coming out in like a couple of months on the PS4. And I was like, okay, I want to play that. And I like, and this game seems like it's not, it's like 2013, it's not that old, and I should just be able to play it really quick and have some fun with it. And so that week was mostly playing that game, and I had... A really good time with it. I think it's it's not like the most amazing game in the world, but it's a really tight game. It's a very solid, well-made game that has like a lot of that Uncharted feel to it, but then also mixes the Uncharted sort of spectacle adventure movie style with a sort of Metroid pseudo-open-world thing going on. I thought it was like, all that stuff is really good. I really enjoyed the combat. The combat was a lot of fun. I like, you know, like it's not the greatest combat in the world, but it was like exceptional combat for that kind of game, much better than I thought the shooting was in Uncharted in the in that in like all the uncharted games and then also even the the story stuff which could be a little bit hammy at times like they like could go a little bit too far with the sort of like the the violence and like how like dark it got felt like it was a little bit at odds with the adventure movie side yeah. of it occasionally but like the characters were, were real, well made the acting was good the writing was sharp like the dialogue was really good it's like that like the story wasn't amazing it had some problems but compared to most action game stories I thought it was like a really good story and I was really into Lara particularly I thought like they did a really good job the actress really who plays her character. is incredible yeah Camilla Ludington like yeah. she does a really good job I'm really excited to play Rise of the Tomb Raider when that comes out to see like them doing more of that character and and hopefully is in Rise of the Tomb Raider do they get a little away from some of that like like the weird stuff of like how like you know, there's Laura Croft kills a lot of people in this game. Nathan Drake kills a lot of people in Uncharted. And it's like, yeah, that happens. And but in Uncharted, I don't really care because it's just kind of like a funny thing to say, like how Pokemon is about cockfighting. It's like, ha ha ha, we're taking this like childish game and like turning it on its head because it's like, oh, you're making animals fight, and that's fucked up if you think about it in a realistic context. But it's not a realistic context in the game, so it's like that's just a joke. And Uncharted, I kind of feel that way, where it's like. It's a crazy action-adventure movie-style thing. Like, Indiana Jones kills a bunch of people in Raiders of the Lost Ark. You just never fucking think about it. You don't think about it like it's like, he's taking this man's life. Like, that's not the way you think about it. It's not like that scene in Saving Private Ryan where, like, the knife slowly goes into that guy's chest. Like, it's not like that. It's They're totally different. I feel like Uncharted gets away with the murder stuff. Tomb Raider is a little bit too far on the, like... Lara Croft is like not into killing people and then she kills a couple people and she gets way into fucking killing people man and it's like dude doesn't Rise of the Tomb Raider do they get away from that because it was a bit hard for me to ignore at points um, I mean you you kill even more people in Rise of the Tomb but, Raider like, does the but tone... the tone is okay. they don't even really bat an eyelash at it okay, it's very much good. like this is just what's gotta be done because there are parts of Tomb Raider that I was like 
this is just fucking ridiculous. And I'm having a good time with it because the action and the combat is fun in this game. But it's like, holy shit. Like, you do... Like, I just, like, stuck a shotgun underneath this dude's chin and blew his fucking head off. Like, you, like this is not Uncharted. This is The Last of Us style, like, violence. It's, like, fucking ridiculous. And again... I- I think Lara Croft really enjoys killing people at some point in that game. And, and they, they call attention, if I remember correctly in Rise of the Tomb Raider, there's one brief moment where someone kind of calls it out that she's a little too used to this. Yeah. And I think it's a good to do it like once, but it's not the overarching theme of the game. Like, Because there is something in that first Tomb Raider game that is kind of funny where it's like, she kills just scores of people, but every time it's like, oh, what have I done? Yeah. And then she kills a bunch more, what have I done? They kill more people, what have I done? And they don't do that in Rise of the yeah. Tomb Raider. yeah. So like yeah, and all that was good, really good, but like there there's there's a there's a tragic into this story because I got like I, I got oh, no. I know exactly I got eighty six percent of the way through the game. I mean, well, the, the, a little bit before eighty six percent of the way through the game, I was in the last area, the shipwreck beach area, like like basically the last area before you get to the very end of the game, and I knew it was like okay, the next part is me going on like this is going to be very clearly I'm going to get on like this boat or whatever, and it's like this is going to be like the end part of the game. I'm going to Kimiko's temple or whatever eventually to here's another weird thing I think it's amazing that they found some way in this game where you are stranded on a mythical Japanese island that you are somehow still killing Russians like I don't know how (laughs) how they managed to twist that around to like the only like like ethnic group that it's still okay to just mass murder are Russians because the main thing I will fucking stand by this the main thing that like a lot of people complain about particularly Uncharted 2 and Uncharted 3, is that there are sections of that game where you are clearly killing, like, Latin American type, like, like just, like, drones of Latin American grunts. And it's like, and people have a big problem with that. But if you put Russians in the game, it's fucking A-OK, man. We can kill as many Russians as we want because we fought them in the Cold War. It's like, I don't... Nobody ever talks about that. It's weird. So, you, yeah, you're, you, I've gotten done killing all the Russians I need to kill other than the last main Russian dude who's in Himiko's temple... Before I do that, I have a couple of podcasts backlogged, and I, I, there's a lot of collectible stuff in this game I haven't done yet, so I decided I'm going to go back, I'm going to do the, a lot of this collectible stuff while I will listen to some podcasts. Have some fun doing that. I really like the optional tombs that Those I hear. They, they expand on that in Rise of the Tomb Raider, which I'm excited by, because I thought they were like fun, quick little puzzles that really uh, help the pacing. And it's like it, it's a fun game to sort of like walk around and explore the world and jump around and, and get the collectibles. And I thought, in particular... The audio log things that they're actually diary entries, but they function like audio logs in that game, I think are really well done. They're well written. They're, they're a nice short length and they're very well acted. And it's like I thought those were really, really well done. I like, think they do it even better in Rise of the Yeah, Tomb Like as far as because as far as like audio logs have become a very tired narrative mechanic in games, I thought that did a great job of like they are again like well acted, like concise, well written. And they're also used to very effectively to supplement, like, sort of, like, story, like, setting kind of stuff instead of it being really critical to the story. And I thought all that stuff was really good. And then eventually I, I cleared out all the collectible stuff in the previous areas and I fast-traveled back to the Shipwreck Beach area where I was going to, like, finish up the collectibles there and then move on to the end of the game. And while I was getting some of the collectibles, I was jumping on some rocks and it's, like, obviously it's a beach and there's, like, a lot of jagged rocks on that beach. And I, there was a GPS cache on a little, like, island thingy I needed to get to. Made a bad jump. Fell in the water. Lara Croft banged her head on spiky rocks, which happens a lot in that area if you're trying to jump around the water. There are a lot of the, the exact same spiky rocks all over the place over there. And she died. And right when it hit the loading screen, the PS4 crashed. Like, hard crash, blue screen. 
And like I didn't think much of it. And it was like, oh, that's, that's weird. But it was really late. It's like, I'm just going to go to bed. Then the next day, we're going to put Tomb Raider on hold for a second. Because then the next day was, I got up and I, I was looking at some video game stuff. And I was like, oh, the Division beta is made open like for that weekend. Or like, it was like three or four days. It's like, oh, I'll go play that. And it's like, because I don't, like, I want to like put some time into that. Because this was like before the, the last podcast we were going to do. I wanted to get in time before that. But then obviously that got canceled. And all those plans got shipped around. So I was like, okay, I'm going to put Tomb Raider on hold for a little bit, play some Division. So now I'm going to talk about the Division. We'll come back to Tomb Raider after the Division. It's suspenseful, Sean. Yes, I know. Well, this is, this is how it happened to me. This is my timeline. This is my story. Okay. So the Division, if, for people who don't remember, it's Tom Clancy's The Division. And it was, again, we talked a little bit about it on the, uh, the sort of the beginning of the year podcast that, when we were talking about like, games that were going to be coming out in 2016. And both of us were very cynical and skeptical about that game, particularly coming off of Watch Dogs being the massive train wreck that it was, and Division feeling like, in terms of like Ubisoft marketing, it was like the second coming of the Watch Dogs. It was like, felt like the way they talk about that game and the way they present that game at E3 feels the exact same way that they did it with Watch Dogs, and Watch Dogs did not pan out very well, so... Both of us, I think, are very reasonably were skeptical about the division. And after playing the beta, which is a very limited selection of the game, I, I can't completely say that the game is going to be very, very good, but I can say that like the fundamentals are there. And if there are going to be problems with the division, it will be kind of like how like with like Destiny, if there's going to be problems, it's going to be about like the amount of content and the type of content, and not necessarily about like the shooting and stuff. Because the division is a third it's very similar to destiny in a lot of ways actually but it's a third person cover based shooter that has like a very strong rpg fundamental in terms of like you shoot people like damage numbers come off of them you're picking up like colored gear that has like special abilities and it's all set in new york like modern day new york city or maybe like near future or whatever the fuck they wanted to be and on black friday like a terrorist cell like released a chemical attack on the us and new york has been quarantined and shut down and so now this elite division called The Division has to go in and sort things out. And that's about as much as a story as I could figure out because they skip the beginning of the game in the beta and you just start out at level four. So you're a division agent. You're in quarantine New York. You're trying to, like, take care of people and, like, figure out what's going on. And you get two story missions in the beta that both of them revolve around you getting, like, you get a doctor and you get a very sarcastic guy who's apparently good at, with, like, technology or something because the doctor runs your medical wing at your base and the sarcastic man runs your, like, tech wing. And so it seems like the progression of the game will be you big building up your headquarters by getting upgrades for all these people and, and, like, upgrading these different these three different wings in your headquarters and then solving story missions that have to do with terrorists, I guess, in New York. I don't know. You did not get a big cut of the division. It was, like, a very, very limited amount. Like, it was so limited down to, like, there's multiple menus that you could, like could only see that the menu existed. You could not see anything about the menu. Like, there's, like the crafting was completely locked out and you couldn't see anything about it other than that there is a crafting table that is in your base. And so there's a lot of stuff like that that it's very hard to give a strong opinion on the division based on how much content was just left out of the beta. But what was there was fairly heartening. At least it's a lot better than I thought it was going to be in terms of the combat feels very strong. It's got... It's a button-based cover stuff which feels a little bit old, especially compared to, like, Tomb Raider, which is kind of like The Last of Us and other modern games have gone 
with a more dynamic cover system where it's not about you hitting A and getting behind and like slapping behind cover and sticking to it. It's just like you if you're behind cover, your character takes cover. This is very much Gears of War style. You're like sticking to cover, holding down A to like move to another piece of cover and, and doing that. And the combat's fine, like it's not amazing, but it's like a good solid third person cover style combat in the vein of something like Gears of War. And one of the things I think they do a very good job with is mixing the RPG side into it in a couple of very clever ways. Like, there's one thing in particular I thought was really interesting that they do is with status effects in the game where, you know, like in an RPG, like Persona or something, you can poison enemies or you can confuse them and all that stuff. In this, their version of that is like flashbang grenades, like inflict like a disoriented status effect on your enemies that like does specific things to their stats presumably you don't get like as much window into it but it's very indicative of that and the one that i thought was really interesting was uh if you're basically an enemy's in cover and you're shooting at their cover or right over their heads you can if you do that long enough with an automatic weapon you can put them into a suppressed state so which like makes them weaker which is like, bring something about, like, modern military tactics that's very fundamental, that's never been represented well in video games, which is the concept of suppressing fire, which is obviously, when you're dealing with, like, actual guns and actual people, is very important. That's, like, that's why you have these guys carrying, like, huge, like, LMG machine guns, is so that they can set up on a post and fire over the heads of the enemies that are, like, in an embankment or wherever they are, to keep them from popping up and shooting at you so you can flank around them. But that, like, in Call of Duty and Battlefield and stuff like that, that concept when it's made, like, virtual and you're, like, actual physical harm is not a part of it, I feel like that, like, the psychological tactic of suppressing fire has never worked in video games. It's you never just hear, sense. like, Captain Price yell, you know, suppressive fire. Yeah, us. yeah, exactly. It's like, it doesn't, like, make the Call of Duty AI never felt like, oh, they don't come out because you're shooting at their cover. That's, like, never felt like that was a thing in games. And this is, like, it's not, like, 100% identical to the actual thing, but it does make some effort to allowing those kinds of tactics of suppressing fire so that you can like flank around enemies because there's a heavy co-op emphasis on this game that I played a couple of the missions there are only two missions so I played both of the missions on co-op when I unlocked their hard mode it's like doing that is fun and like there is a strong tactical framework to the game that if the later game abilities that you unlock and stuff supplement that sort of very tactical third person cover based shooter combat I think that could work really well. But the, the abilities you have early on are not particularly interesting, so I'm hoping that the like the in-game abilities that you can't necessarily see in the beta like open that stuff up. And so that's most of the division. Like there's one other part of the division in the beta called the Dark Zone, which was it basically their sort of dynamic multiplayer thing that may it's hard to tell if this is just like because of the beta or what, but I felt like I went into this dark zone where the whole thing is like you're supposed to find gear in the dark zone that is like contaminated. So you have to find gear and then go to an extraction point where you put it on a helicopter. You call in a helicopter, the helicopter comes down, you put it on and it flies away and then you get your gear. But like, but it just like drops players into that area. So anyone, and like anyone can kill anyone if you like. So if you run into another player in the dark zone, you can kill them and just take their gear theoretically and then airlift it out of there. But if you do that, then you're marked as rogue, which means everyone knows that you knows in there knows that you killed someone and they're like red on their screen, so they know, well this guy's a fucking murderer, so we'll kill him. And it's like there's an interesting psychological mechanic there at work that the end result is nobody kills anybody, and if anybody kills someone, everyone else descends on that one player like ravenous wolves because you are free to kill anyone who's gone rogue and just take their shit 
because there's no penalty to you. So it's it's a complex thing that like yeah, I don't understand it. <laughs> it's it's hard to explain. It's like it was hard to sort of decipher playing it. And I don't know. Maybe in the end game it'll be a lot more interesting. But it just felt a lot like people running around a very empty facsimile of New York, picking up loot on their own, looking at each other a little bit cautiously, and then being like, "I'm just going to go to the helicopter." It's like, yeah, we're just everyone just wants to get their own gear. Nobody wants to fuck with each other. And it's just like it felt very barren. So I don't know if that again that might change with more players in there and like a higher level cap and stuff and people like maybe organizing groups to go into this dark zone area. But in the beta, I just was like, I spent like two hours in there across my all of my time playing the beta. It's like, I have no idea what's going on, on with this. So I finished up my division beta thing. I played it for like kind of a couple of days, like a couple, like probably four or five hours total. Cause I like kind of ringed everything out of the beta. I could because there wasn't a lot there. And I was like, I was really curious about what the game would be like. After I put the division down... Can I ask you something? Okay, go ahead. Just yeah. about to finish up the division discussion. Yeah, yeah go ahead. Yeah, ask you, me anything you want to know. Yeah, do you feel like you want to play the game now when it comes out? I want to see what the reviews say. Okay. It's, it's very much something about... I mean, it's it's the, the amount of stuff in the beta was so limited and so restrictive. I feel like there are huge parts of that game that I know nothing about. All I know about are two missions, like a little bit about this Dark Zone stuff, and what the basic like low-level combat is like. It's like that game might be complete. Like that combat might feel completely different at like level twenty something. You know, yeah. it's it's really hard to say. I will say, I will actually, I will say one more thing about the division that's a little disheartening. Is again, it, but it's like these. You only have two missions, so it's hard to extrapolate too much. But those two missions were fairly dull in terms of the mission design. In particular, the first mission was literally you walk into a big room and you kill three guys in that room, and then four more guys run in, and you kill four guys. Then you go through a hallway that brings you to another bigger room where there's, like, three guys in that room. You kill those three guys. Four guys come in. You kill those four guys. Then you go down a hallway that opens up into a bigger room where you kill three guys, then four more guys come in. Two of those guys have baseball bats this time, which means they're very easy to kill because they just run at you, and they're fucking idiots. Like, who brings a baseball bat to an AK-47 fight? And so you kill those four guys. Then you come out into a bigger, like, helipad area whether you kill three guys and then four guys show up, the, one of those guys is like a really good guy, or like not good, but like heavy. Yeah, a heavy guy, and you kill him and you kill his buddies, and then he, the the, the heavy guy, drops a cool looking gun. That's it's an AK forty seven, but the icon is green, so you know it's a better AK forty seven than the other AK forty seven you have. It's a slightly strange concept, and then you jump down an elevator shaft and you then the level's over. This the second mission. You call, you fight a couple of guys in one of the hallways, but other than that, and putting a battery in a slot, it's basically the exact same thing. So it's like, again, it's like two missions that are like the, 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 maybe the two first missions of the game, other than like the opening tutorial. Like it's hard to tell. It's just like maybe the, those missions might be completely different once you get like more powers and you're like later in the game. I have no idea. But the first two missions in the game felt pretty dull. Yeah, I just ask because. I think me playing this game will depend entirely on whether you play the game. Yeah, if you play the game, yeah. I'll probably play it because, one, we could play it together. Yeah. And, two, then we can talk about it on the podcast. I don't really have an interest in it otherwise, even if it's good. But I'm, I'm curious. Yeah, this know? is definitely... I'm not coming out of this beta feeling like I need to pre-order this okay. game. But I am coming out of this beta feeling like I need to pay attention to how people talk about this okay. game when it comes out. It's definitely... Yeah. I'm a lot more optimistic about it now than I was going in. That's for fucking certain. Okay. Well, go back to your story. Okay. I want so, to hear the ending. It's yeah. Fun. So that so that was my my brief flirtation with the division when the beta came out. And then after that was done, I was like, 
Okay, I've, I've taken enough of a break. It's time to get back to Tomb Raider. And at this point, if, keep in mind, it had been a couple of days because I was obviously doing other stuff. And so I was like, okay. I, I had completely forgotten what had happened the last time I had played Tomb Raider. I don't know if you remember, Jonathan, from the end of the last part of my story. A, a crash on your PS4. Exactly. So lo and behold, to my dismay, the next time I, I, I booted up Tomb Raider, after I deleted the, the Division beta once it shut down, I was like, okay, main menu. Was at the main menu, go in, continue game, load my save, last slave save slot, the loading screen is going. The loading screen goes for a little bit longer than I remembered. It was like, this is taking a bit. And then as soon as it loads, it immediately crashes again. It's like, oh shit. And then as soon as that happens, I was like, oh, this is, this is what happened the last time I played this game. I didn't think much of it, because that happens sometimes. Like, so games crash. It, it's not an uncommon phenomenon. So it's like, okay, that's... This is a little bit more worrying, so I, I like just back out of the game. I was like, I don't need to back out of the game. I back out of like the report thing because the game completely hard crashed. It didn't like freeze or something. Load up the game again. It's like maybe it was just a weird fluke. It's like okay, continue game. Load save slot one. Loading, loading, loading. Hard crash. It's like okay, this might be a bit of a thing. So I after that I hard rebooted my PS4 because like okay my PS4 has been like that standby mode for like a couple of weeks now it's been a while since I like brought it down to zero brought it back up maybe that has something to do with what's going on hard reboot my PS4 load up the Tomb Raider main menu continue game load save slot one loading 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 hard crash this is even more disconcerting when faced with this I was like okay well. I'm just going to re-download the whole game. Like, because yeah. it's not that long. It's like, it's, it's like a 15 gigabyte game because it's a port of a PS3 version. So, delete the game, start downloading again. I think I watched a movie or something. I probably watched a couple of episodes of The X-Files. Came back, main menu, continue game, load save slot one, loading, 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 blue screen, crashed. It's like, okay, this is, this has got to be a thing. So, I break out my laptop and... This is something I should have done beforehand, but I was sort of dreading the results that I might find. I went to Google. I typed in Tomb Raider Definitive Edition PS4 C immediately fills out with crash. It's like, <laughs> okay. <laughs> Google. So I, I Google that. And then the, the entire page, or the first page of Google results, are all different tech forums talking about a bug, a crash bug in Tomb Raider Definitive Edition. It's like, this is, this is getting even more disconcerting. So I just like tab all of them and I'm reading them all. And all of them basically say the exact same thing. Which is that there is a bug. This does not happen to everybody, obviously. Or the game would have never been shipped. But there is a bug specifically that it can trigger in two places. There's a cutscene that happens a little bit earlier than where I was. Where you get into a helicopter in a big like action moment of the game. And then like after like you get out of this helicopter, the game can crash. And bad things happen. Or you can... Do what I did, which discover the simplest and stupidest fucking way to trigger a bug I have ever heard is to fast travel to the shipwreck beach area. And if you fast travel to the shipwreck beach area and die there, there is a there is a reasonable chance that when you die, the game will crash while it is autosaving right after you died. And and the helicopter bug does the same thing; it crashes when you're autosaving, which is very problematic. Because I don't know, Jonathan, if you've ever paid attention when you're playing video games, but whenever you start yeah. up a video game, there's always a thing at the bottom right of the screen that like shows you this is like what your auto saving symbol is. Don't turn off the game when it's auto saving, and most people don't do that. It's it's actually pretty difficult to do. You have to if normally you would have to yank out your power cord to get that to actually happen quick enough in a game for it to cry, like the game to turn off. 
while autosaving. So it's not a problem that people generally run into, but it's a thing that everyone, all games warn you about constantly because there's a very good chance if that if the game crashes while it's autosaving, that save file will become corrupt. The main problem you run into then is if the game you are playing does not provide you a comprehensive save screen function and yes. relies completely on autosaving, like another game I played once called Assassin's Creed Revelations, which you can, through no fault of your own, end up with the only save that you can reasonably have of that game being irreparably corrupted, or in the case of Revelations, just erasing your progress through some divine work of fuck you, Sean. I don't know what that one was. But, yes, yeah, so... 85, or no, 86% of my way through Tomb Raider Definitive Edition, I found myself with a save completely fucked. The only other recourse I thought of, and I would, if I had discovered this sooner, this would have been a possibility, but I had put the game down for a couple of days, would, if my PS Plus save had been back, if, like, before, like, if the new PS, the save had not been uploaded yet to the cloud, but it had been a couple of days, so that had happened fucking, like, three days oh, before. Oh, so this was, like, a perfect storm. This was... There's nothing I could do other than to delete that save, start a new game, and then hope and, you don't do it again. Yeah, hope it doesn't happen. Because again, like that's not reasonably avoidable. There's no like because if you because you know how that game is structured. Like those areas, because of story stuff, are pretty well locked off. Like yes. the only way to go back in the game and then go back forward is basically to use the fast travel system. You can't walk between all the different areas. I don't even remember walking between the areas. Yeah, like, like, I'm sure the, I did it, but there's like a couple of like small ones that are adjacent to one another that you can walk between. But like the big hub areas are all completely separated. So. If you ever leave that shipwreck beach area and want to come back to it, which is something you actually need to do to solve one of the tombs because you need an upgrade to solve one of the tombs of that area, you can trigger this bug. Which also led me to encountering the, the single most frustrating thing I think you can ever find on the internet when you're having one of these problems. It's like the kind of person that more than anyone else, I wish I could just punch people through a computer monitor. It's people that go onto these bug forums where someone's saying... This is a, a serious bug, a crash bug that will corrupt your save in this game. It's like, and everyone's like, oh my god, this happened to me. I can't, like, I didn't know this was a like, common thing. You go, like, all these posts saying that. And then you get one motherfucker who's like, I don't know what you're talking about. I beat the game just fine. Didn't happen to me. It's like, <laughs> fuck off, asshole. Like, do you have no idea how fucking technology works, you piece of shit? Like, no, it doesn't happen to everybody. If it happens to everybody... The fucking game wouldn't have come out. Like, like the entire video game community would have fucking spit roasted Square Enix if that had happened. Because you don't fucking put out a game that you can't fucking complete. It's 2016, assholes. It's like, on all those forums, you get these people that's like, Yeah, it didn't happen to me. I beat the game. I don't know what you people are complaining about. What are I they, beat the game just fine. What are those people there for? I don't fucking know. I they, to pat themselves on the back because they didn't run to the bug, as if like it's everyone else's fault. It's like you get that for everything. Like anytime someone's talking about like, oh man, I hit this like critical like mission killing bug in Fallout Four, and then like there's all these people who's like, I complete that mission without any trouble at all. I don't. It must be your fault. You must be an idiot because the technology broke on you, but it didn't break on me. It's like just go fuck yourselves you assholes well if it's any consolation sean okay the ending of tomb raider is the worst part of the game i've watched it on youtube okay because that was the only way i could see it's it. fine yeah it's, it's just... fine yeah yeah it's fine it's not gameplay wise there's not much going yeah on. i did i didn't miss much but 
this happens to you though. This I've only ever had something like this once, and it was near the beginning of Arkham Asylum, and I had to restart that game. I've never. You've had this with multiple games yeah, where you're like, about to finish it and you get fucked. It is very similar to what happened with Assassin's Creed Revelations, although at the very least there was this like support group that existed out there because when that Revelations one happened. I fucking scoured the internet up and down in a blind rage to try to find anyone else who encountered the most bizarre, like, like fucking unimaginable bug I have ever run into in any video game ever where the game just starts over from the beginning after the end of a mission and it overrides your fucking save. Like, at least... I don't know, maybe this isn't better, but at least, like, there are thousands of other people that have had this exact same thing happen to them in Tomb Raider, and I'm not the only person on the planet who ran into this fucking bug. Alright, well, so what, what did you do after that, Sean? So, I think, understandably, after that, I was very, I was sort of emotional. Because there's so, you know how that feels. Where yes. It's like, I've put... Like, I put probably like 12, 13, 14 hours into Tomb Raider up to that point. I was so fucking close to just finishing the goddamn game. That's like, it's just the most frustrating feeling I've ever had in my life. Like, whenever that happens. with It's not just video games, any sort of technology. Like, losing an essay or something like that you've written. Anytime, like... Losing a podcast? Yeah. Anytime technology inexplicably fails on you and you're completely powerless to do anything about it. And it just, like, erases hours of your hard work. That's, like, the most just, like crippling sense of defeat I ever run into is like just I there's like I just feel so fucking powerless it's like what because it just all goes away in a moment it's just a moment where you just it hits this blue screen you're like oh god like now I just like now I have to find something else to do tonight and I'm very emotionally distraught so I I went to the only place I could Jonathan and that's Digimon Story Cyber Sleuth I don't okay. know. While you were talking, I looked this up because I okay. all I'd seen was people online talking about Digimon Story Cyber Sleuth yes. and saying it was really good. And I'd seen that you were playing it when I was on my PS4. Yes. Um, but I didn't know what it was. I assumed it was like some $15 PSN game. No. Nope. I said it's a full $60 like big retail release. So this is a big deal. Yeah, no. It's like the fifth or sixth entry into the Digimon Story franchise that I believe this is the first one to come over here. And it is a PS Vita and PS4 game. The PS4 version is 60 bucks. The PS Vita version is 40 bucks, And you can't do cross-buy, but you can do cross-save, which I like. I am weirdly tempted to fucking buy the Vita version because it's a, it would be a really good Vita game. I'm glad I have the PS4 version because it looks very nice, and that's it's a very involved JRPG, and so I'm, I'm glad that I am playing it this way. But yes, I, I went to Digimon Story Cyber Sleuth because I had heard that it's pretty good and because I had been craving playing something... Not like super action based, and as you know, like I had no outlet for that because I couldn't get Fire Emblem, yes. I couldn't get XCOM 2. And this is obviously it's not a. I love that this is. I can't get XCOM, I can't get Fire Emblem. Digimon is here for the rescue. It's, I, it's not totally sane. Remember, I was in a weird place emotionally, physically, intellectually. I just didn't know what to do for because I had. Also, I had like set aside like that evening to finish Tomb Raider, and yes. all of a sudden that was snatched no, from my clawing hands. That's the worst feeling because you get in this mood of like, I am going to do this thing, this game tonight, and if you can't do it, you just don't know what yeah, to do. Yeah, because I like had like four hours blocked in my head that evening. Yeah. And I was like, I know this is like the last stretch of that game. I'm going to finish it. I was like, what the fuck? And it was like, I and obviously like turn based. Like JRPG combat is very, very different from <laughs> like the like turn-based XCOM 
Fire Emblem style, but they're closer related than like playing another shooter. Because I just played two. I just played two third person shooters back to back with the Division Beta and Tomb Raider. So it's like I I would need something different. And then when I was very young, I liked Digimon quite a bit because I watched the original Digimon cartoon, Digimon Adventure, which they eventually made a sequel, Digimon Adventure Two, which is bullshit. It's nowhere near as good as Digimon Adventure One. Like the original cast is older, and they're like a mentor role, and the new cast, Davis. Is a fuck. He sh- he's fucking shit. Vmon is nowhere near as cool as Agumon. It's just it all went to hell. Digimon Adventure Two is nowhere near as good. And then by the time Digimon Tamers came out, which is the third one, I was a bit too old. And now, now that I'm getting back into Digimon in a really like strange way, I found out that people really think that like Digimon Tamers, which is the third show they did, is really good and like really strangely dark. And I've like read some stuff about that game or not that game, that series is like. Maybe I should go back and fucking watch Digimon Tamers. That show sounds fucking crazy. Because that's like Digimon or like in the real world 100%. It's totally different. But so, so yeah, like I have a certain affinity for Digimon from my childhood. Like I even had originally, because Digimon was originally like a Tamagotchi pet kind of thing. Like a little like watch toy that like you like press some buttons, like fed them stuff. And like they pooped and you cleaned up the poop. Like it, it wasn't... The 90s was a very different time for video yes. games, right? You didn't have your cell phone to play video games on. So I remember like, having one of those, and it was like reasonably, pop- reasonably popular in my elementary school among the first graders, you know. And then the Dig- Digimon Adventure cartoon came out, which I guess I'd call it anime now, but it was a cartoon then to me. And that was, like, that Digimon, I will stand by it, like, that Digimon cartoon is way better than the Pokemon cartoon. Like, the Pokemon cartoon's okay, but the Digimon cartoon, like... It's for kids, but it has a certain maturity and a certain heart to it. Like, the characters go through drama. They evolve over the course of that series. It's like a finite 50-episode thing and not this, like, unending behemoth just, like, monster that nobody knows what even it is anymore, like the Pokemon cartoon. Like, the Digimon cartoons are good. I also really like the Digimon because Digimon, like, because you can, obviously, like, the Pokemon comparisons are inevitable, but Digimon aren't just, like brain dead and can only repeat their names the way that Pokemon can. Like, Digimon are intelligent, sentient creatures that can have conversations and have emotions and can also go through character development over the course of a series that is a lot more satisfying than Pikachu just being like, Pikachu! And it's like, it's like, Digimon is like if all the Pokemon were the great detective Pikachu. That's what Digimon are like. They, like, they all talk, they all have personalities, they Pika- all have their own lives. Pikachu does go through his anorexia, though, where he goes from fat to thin yeah. over the course yeah. of ten years. That's a good point. The Digimon have very different body issues when they digivolve. Okay. That's a whole totally different thing. So anyway... Can I just say one thing with Digimon? Yes, go I ahead. have no relationship to Digimon. I don't... Sure, exactly. I don't I, I'm, I'm sure it's really cool. I just have never gotten it into is. it. Um, I just... The thing is, whenever, for my whole life, whenever anyone talks about Digimon, it sounds like an escaped mental patient. We're sure. about Digimon, and he digivolved, and Agumon, and it's just... It's, it's, it's Agumon! It's pronounced Agumon, Agumon and okay. he's fucking awesome. And one of the best things about this game is that it is very easy to get Agumon early on. And there is an Agumon and a Gabumon, okay. which are the two best Digimon that, that are like story-based characters. Let's simplify this. What is this game? What do you do? Okay. You said let's simplify this, and then you said something that is in no way, this is not going to simplify fucking anything, Jonathan. You've made a huge mistake. But yes, I've explained basically my relationship to Digimon. So yes, let's talk about Digimon Story Cyber Sleuth, which is a... I have not heard a video game title better than that since I played Earth Defense Force 4.1 The Shadow of New Despair. Digimon Story Cyber Sleuth is an amazing fucking title. 
And while I am talking about this, this is going to be this is going to be a long thing that I'm about to do right now, trying to okay. explain this game to you. I have not been in this position since I tried to explain Persona Four on one of those end of the year podcasts, like in 2012 or whatever the fuck that happened Strapping a lifetime kids. ago. Yes. So I will start with the story stuff. I'm going to start from the beginning. The game starts up. This has no direct like story connections to any other Digimon franchise. So like you're coming in completely clean. This takes place in a near future version of Japan where like virtual reality is a total thing. There's this thing called the Eden Network and all these people are on the Eden Eden Network that you like hack into with like virtual reality stuff. And so the game opens up where you're in this like digital chat room where it's like there's all these people talking and they start talking about like I've heard that there's this like like the the mascot Mr. Navit for the Eden service. Like there's this guy who like hacked his avatar to look like it because in this world your avatar has to look like yourself because it's imposed by law because if it doesn't if your digital avatar does not look like you they're afraid that people are going to commit crimes. So only hackers are able to make themselves look different than like actual their normal physical appearance. So it's like all these kids in this chat room are like, oh man, like I've heard like this, there's this fucking hacker that looks like Mr. Navit going around and he's giving people this thing called the Digimon capture device. And it's like, it was like, you're fucking talking shit out your ass, man. They don't say it like that. That's, <laughs> that's how I would phrase it. The localization of this game does get kind of colorful, not in a lay like, like shit fuck kind of way, but like they have to be very creative with their choice of translating certain characters. So all these characters are like, all these people are saying, it's like, no. You're talking bullshit. That's not true. Like, you're crazy. Like, we've all heard, all heard the Digimon rumors. Like, there's no way it's true. And then, like, a couple of people are like, no, it's serious. I've heard that there's this, like, dark digital underground where all the trash data goes called Kulun that's, like, at the bottom of Eden that's, like, normal people don't go to. That's where all the hackers hang out. And it's like, if you go there, man, it's like, you'll see some fucking Digimon. It's like, you're crazy. Like, everyone sees, like, Digimon are just, like, corrupt programs because Digimon are all, like, digital monsters. That's what it stands for. So it's like, there's, that's, that's crazy. But then three of the people are like, no, let's go do it. And one of those people is you, and you can choose to be a girl or a boy. I, I chose to be a boy and it's because I'm a boy. And so it's like, okay. Thanks for letting us know, yeah. Sean. So then you, you leave the chat room and you come down to Kulun, where it's like you meet up with two characters that you're the two other people. This is the first time you're meeting with like normal avatars and stuff outside of this like weird chat room. And these two characters eventually, like, Nokia is this one girl, and I forget what the guy's name is because he's really boring. But Nokia is actually an interesting character that she comes back later. She's not that important now. But you're all down there. You're hanging out. And then all of a sudden, you see this, like, ghost that's, like, this, like, weird digital ghost. You're like, what the fuck is that? And you're, like, all chasing this ghost. Then all of a sudden, Mr. Nap comes in, and he gives you this, like, it's this, like, this hacker dude, and he gives you the Digimon capture device. And it's like, what the fuck is going on? And then the ghost shows up again, and then all of a sudden, there's this insane freaky like squid monster thing that's chasing you that i've never seen before in any of the digimon shows and you're running away you're like what the fuck is going on and then you run into this and you get separated from your friends and you run into this hacker dude and this hacker dude is like i've got three digimon you can pick one of them and that is something that happens I, it's not it's not fire type uh, water type and plant type it's not 100 percent pokemon but you do pick from one of three Digimon that is completely irrelevant to the rest of the game because the way Digimon are in this game is totally different from how Pokemon Pokemon. It's fucking crazy. So I picked Terriermon, who's a cute little dude with big ears. I was like, okay, I got this guy. Now I'm fighting some Digimon. And it's like, this shit is fucking crazy. And then like the Eater, which is what you later find out, like the crazy squid monster comes down and you're like all running away from it because you're freaked the fuck out. And Agumon and Gabumon show up and they're really cool Digimon who are like the mascot characters. And they're, like, voiced and stuff, but they can't really help you because this thing is too powerful. And you're trying to get to this, like, thing that's where, like, you can jack out of Eden. 
it's like you're trying to jack out and ever and your two friends get out and you're the last one to go and as you're jacking out something wrong happens okay and so then all of a sudden you dump into shinjuku like real world japan tokyo because all the game like the real world stuff all takes place in tokyo and you're like all fucked up you're you're like you look like some digital monster but you're like in the real world and it's like not not a digimon digital monster but like a if digimon didn't exist and i said digital monster like that kind of digital monster like you don't look human anymore you're all like weird ephemeral data stuff and everyone's freaking the fuck out and there's this cop here that's like what the fuck is going on what the fuck is this thing and then this like really cool souped up car like american muscle car comes screaming out of nowhere like, pulls over to the side, opens up the door, and this hot blonde detective lady's in there, and she's like, come with me. She basically says, come with me if you want to live. She doesn't actually say that, but that's... And I should back up a little bit. Everything in the game is in Japanese with the translated subtitles because Digimon does not have anywhere near the popularity over here that Pokemon does, so it does not warrant a full dubbing. But the... So... Everyone's talking Japanese. I guess that's what I want to say. So... So you get in the car with this hot blonde uh, detective lady, and she takes you back to this is her place, basically, or like her office, because she runs a private detective agency, and she's into weird fucking shit that happens. I don't know, like I maybe something reveals something at some point about how she knew that you were there, because that's never really come up. She just sort of arrived out of nowhere and like helps you, and so you're like still all fucked up and don't even really look human, and she's like, I don't know what's going on with you, but it seems like I should probably be helping you. And I'm into really weird stuff. So it's like, okay, that's great. It's just like, well, maybe you can go back into Eden, into the network, and you can collect your avatar parts to look human again. So you go do that, and it's like, that's where a lot of Digimon stuff happens. Where you start getting other Digimon, you meet some weird lady that's like, basically, like, you go to this place, it's kind of like the Velvet Room for Persona, where there's this character that teaches you about, like, Digimon and all this stuff, and you get other Digimon, and no other character except for, like, one other character addresses that this whole thing exists, that you're constantly going back to to mess with your Digimon, and no one else knows about it. So that happens, and you're, like, in, you get your avatar back, and then you come back, and it's like, okay, now I look human, except for I'm not actually really human. Like, you later find out, like, you are completely outside of your human body, your human body is in a coma, in the hospital somewhere, and it's like, you are, like, you're, like, this digital representation of yourself, and you're walking around in the world looking like a human because you have your, like, avatar on from your digital world, and you can just, like, jack into fucking anything. Like, you can walk up to a cell phone, and you can go into the network in the cell phone. It's like you are a digital man in a, in a real world, not, not a real man in a digital world, which is a flip on the normal Digimon premise, because usually it's about, like, kids and Japanese teenagers... That, that end up, that they're real people that end up inside a digital world. This is completely fucking different. And so then this crazy, hot, blonde detective lady is like, all this shit is fucked up, but the, the special power that you have to, like, be digital and go into, like, any network and fuck with Digimon and all this stuff is really awesome. So I'm going to hire you as my assistant, and from today forward, you are now a cyber sleuth. And you become the cyber sleuth, and now for the rest of the game... You solve, like, crazy digital happenings that involve Digimon as the badass fucking cyber sleuth that you are, and you fight Digimon with other Digimon, and that's basically what has happened up to this point for me. Sean? Yes? I think one of the best things we can say about today's podcast is that if you are ever accused of a serious crime, yes. we can use this recording in your insanity defense. I told you that this wouldn't, wouldn't make anything simpler, Jonathan. I tried to warn you. Okay, Yes, do you have any questions so far? The thing is, I like your insanity. Okay, <laughs> yes. Because we've done 135 of these. I know zero about Digimon. Yes. But I like this kind of game. This sounds awesome. Should I play it? 
I don't know because there's <laughs> there's more to talk about. I will say that like the story stuff, there are the story is very inconsistent in this game, and it's like a little bit frustrating that like sometimes some of the characters are really great. I love the character design of the game; is phenomenal. Like a lot of the the main characters have like really good looking designs that are not like super cluttered the way that a lot of JRPG character designs are. I mean, it reminds me a lot of Persona in a number of different ways in terms of like the real world stuff. You don't have social links, but like a lot of the characters you run into and the ways they the, the way they look like reminds me of how Persona handles a lot of that stuff because there's also that element of you balancing going into these digital like dungeons basically and then like walking around in the real world and trying to solve crimes. I wish that the detective stuff was more fleshed out because the way they set it up is that there are like a number of different chapters in the game. I think there's a bunch. I think there's probably like 20 something chapters because you move through them pretty quickly. But each chapter like revolves around a core central case that like you go through that's fully voiced in like like a pretty well done little story. And then you do a bunch of side quests basically which are cases you get from Kyoko, your, your detective sort of boss. That you go to this board and pick up like random cases. And doing the, like a lot of those random cases are not that interesting. There was one that had to do with a like weird like occult research society that was like dealing with like ghost stuff that was pretty cool but most of the time the the side quests are not are not as good as they could be and i wish some of that writing was sharper in places but the part of the game that is if you are like way into pokemon will blow your fucking mind is the entire like making digimon fighting with digimon that side of the game is like if pokemon went fucking crazy like, on, like, fucking methamphetamines, just, like, blow your fucking mind. Because Pokemon is, has been what it has been for a very long time, where you have six Pokemon, and there's, like, whatever number of different types of Pokemon you have that have their all their, like, kind of rock, paper, scissors thing. And each Pokemon can have four moves and all that stuff. Digimon, throw all that you know out the window. While it may look a lot like that on the surface, like, I am still, like, peeling back layers that are, like, just, like, feel like I've... There's a insane depth to this game that I know Pokemon. There are people that are way into Pokemon that will say that like there's stuff in Pokemon when you get super deep into it that like competitive levels that's really deep. But like Digimon introduces some of that stuff like earlier on in a way that like you need to get into this like digivolving stuff and like making your Digimon better is totally different. So I'm going to try. What to... kind of battle system is it? Is it like it, a... it is. It's very, it's just like turn-based battle. It's, it actually reminds me of a lot of Final Fantasy X in terms of like the interface where it's, you can have three Digimon out in a battle at one time and you can carry, I want to say, ten Digimon maybe in your, like in the back that you can swap out seamlessly. And so it's like all, a lot of the, the combat is about um, managing turns because it's like you can see the turn order on the right side of the screen just descending down. And so it's like, you know, you have your three Digimon, usually there you can fight up to three Digimon enemies at the same time. And it's about, like, okay, I can have this, like, I can see, like, I have these guys going first, like, because this guy's speed is really high, and I can, like, use his speed down to lower their speed. It's, like, it's, it's fairly traditional Japanese JRPG combat, like, turn-based combat, but, like, the Digimon side of it, how complicated the Digimon side of it can get makes it a lot more sophisticated. So to try to explain that, I'm going to go through the life of one Digimon that, like, like just explain how they evolve how they can change, and how crazy that can get, and how very different it is from how Pokemon handles things. And in this conversation, I'm going to say the word Digivolve a lot, because that's just the terminology for it. It's basically, you can think of it as evolution. It's a Digimon going up to a more powerful form than what it was, once was. So, again, strap in. This is going to be a bit of a long thing, but I feel like to talk about this game, I just... And just for my own personal... 
I need this. I need to talk about this. I'm just going to go through the life of one Digimon. I'm going to call this Digimon Gary because it's going to get very confusing very quickly if I try to refer to Gary solely by his Digimon name. Because you will lose... I have completely lost track of which Digimon were ever which Digimon. Which is a little window into how fucking crazy some of this stuff gets. So, and remember, you can have three Digimon out at once. You can have, like, I think it's ten. It might be twelve Digimon in your back. And then at your Digi Farm, which is like your... Again, there's a lot of Digis here. Just roll with it. You can have different farms that's kind of almost like a very, like, pared-down chow garden or something. Where you have, like... 10 Digimon per. So I have 20 Digimon that are all constantly getting experience back at my Velvet Room equivalent, basically, that are in there. And they can, like, train and stuff to boost their stats in certain ways. I have, right now, because of, like, certain limits, I have 6 Digimon in my back that are not actively fighting and 3 Digimon that are actively fighting. So I have 29 Digimon that are leveling up at the same time while I'm playing the game. So it's like, like keep that in mind that, like, one Digimon is a very small piece to everything you have going on. So now let's get started. We have Gary. Gary is a Pabumon, which is the most basic. There's like four or five super basic like baby Digimon that are like, they're little like gelatinous blobs. Like they're nothing. You never want to use one to fight. They only have like one attack, like this bubble attack. They're completely fucking useless, but you can digivolve them into other things. So it's like you have this baby little, cute little gelatinous blob that you would never think would be something that you fight anyone with. And you have him. I put him in my back like part like of my inventory my digimon inventory i guess and he's gaining experience while i'm doing battles with my better pokemon or my better digimon i'm gonna mix up say pokemon a lot because it just comes off the mouth easier and so then eventually Pabamon reaches level five because every digimon you can see can be level 99 or at least you can see in your like the equivalent of your pokedex the capacity for all digimon to be level 99 it shows you what their stats would be at different levels which is very useful but for for Gary right now, he can only reach a max level of 5. Like, that's the limit he can reach. And so it's like, okay, so Gary, the Pabamon, reaches level 5. And now I'm going to go back to my, my Digilab, which is where you do your Digivolution. And <laughs> again, there's going to be a lot of Digis. You just got to roll with it. So then I Digivolve. I can, so then I can Digivolve Gary now into probably five different Digimon. That's like all completely different Digimon. And I pick one. I'm going to Digivolve Gary into Gabumon. Where Gabumon is... He's one of like the very iconic Digimon from the show. He's like a little lizard dude that has like a wolf fur on him. And he's got a little horn. Really cool. Love Gabumon. Gabumon's great. So Gary's now at Gabumon. And Gabumon is, has a fire affinity. So he's, he has fire attacks. And he can be... He, his fire attacks do better against plant-type Digimon. And he's weaker to water-type Digimon. And the element stuff is a little bit different than... Pokemon because you have that trinity of three that's your plant fire and uh, water and then there's another trinity of elements that is completely separate that is rock lightning and wind I believe that like those so all through those two sets have a rock paper scissors mechanic but they do not interact with each other which just like opens up the kinds of different Digimon you need and there's an and then also Gabumon is a data type Digimon so there's, there's affinity, elemental affinities and there are types. There's the vaccine type, virus type, and data type. And that's its own rock, paper, scissors relationship. So every Digimon, except for some that are, some can be neutral in either of those or both of those, so they're outside of that system, every Digimon will engage with two different trinities at once. And that is really important because if you have 
uh, like affinity advantage and type advantage, you will do three times damage. If you like, and if you're like the opposite, if you don't have, if you're at disadvantage, you can do half the damage you normally do. So that's like critical to, to winning battles once it gets difficult. So that's one of the reasons why you need so many Digimon is you need so many different combinations for different situations at different times because you are constantly switching out. You have no dedication to any individual Digimon, which is sad for little Gary because little Gary is not going to be getting a whole lot of attention the way that like Pikachu might be in your Pokemon game if you want to use him all the time. So going back. Gary is a Gabumon. He's a fire data type Digimon. It's like, okay, great. You're having some fun. His max level is higher than five. His max level is... Actually, I, I, I missed one step. There was another Digimon, a Tsunemon, that's also really shitty. Let's just say, we, we made him a Tsunemon, then Digivolved him to Gabumon. I, it's understandable why I missed that point, because it's not that important. So, God, so in the Tsunemon stage, you got him to level 13, which was his new level cap. And every time you Digivolve, the level goes back to one. And so when he digivolved from Sunimon now to Gabumon, Gary's level goes back to 1. But now Gary's max level is 25. And so he can live as his Gabumon life and like grow strong, much stronger because he has stronger base stats and he can meet, reach a higher level than any of his previous forms could. So we're fighting with Garymon now. We're putting him into the rotation a little bit. He's got some fire attacks that are useful. Gary's leveling up. Gary's getting better. We're having some fun with Gary. But then eventually Gary reaches level 25. He's reached his peak. Gary's getting old as Gabumon. We don't need him anymore. This has only been about an hour of Gary's life. Oh, God. So, because you can gain the early levels, you gain really fast. So now we're looking at Gary the Gabumon and says, like, Gary, you're just not doing it for me the way you used to. But luckily, you're high enough level now that I can go and I can Digivolve you again. And I can look. Gary can, trans- can Digivolve into four or five different other completely unique forms. And we're looking at it and... I want to sort of follow the way the show did the traditional Digivolution path for Gabumon. I want him to Digivolve into Garurumon, which is a cool big wolf. Garurumon is fucking cool. So we Digivolve him to Garurumon. It's like his level goes back to one. But now Gary's really kicking ass because he's a like whole much better type of Digimon now. And he's still got fire spells. He's still fire data type because he could be like a fucking water virus type. Or so like, like any of those other forms could be completely unrelated. Like they, they do not... Like, Gabumon could have been something totally different. We've decided to go with Garurumon. Gary is Garurumon. And Garurumon's fucking max level is like 40. So we're leveling him up. And now we're getting into a part that's a little more sophisticated where we're noticing that all along the way, uh, Gary has had a number of different abilities that he could use. And in each of the different forms, going all the way back to his little baby Pabumon form, the top skill he had was a like unique signature skill for that form that was always different for each of the forms. So like Gabumon has a blue blaster where he shoots blue fire, where only Gabumon has that. And any only Gabumons ever have it. And you can only have it if you are Gabumon. Gary will never be able to use blue blaster again unless we decide to make him a Gabumon again, which we can do, which we will do. We'll get to that later. But so now he doesn't have Blue Blaster, his, Gary the Garurumon has Foxfire, which is basically like Blue Blaster, it's just a better form. But if we, if we Digivolve him again, he will no longer have Foxfire. But as he's been leveling up in his different forms, as like in his Gabumon form he was leveling up, he was starting to learn different attacks, these, these acquired skills he got, which were like, he had one that was like a rocket-type attack, and he had one where he could increase the attack power of one of the other Digimon out there in your battles. And those skills, he still has as Gary the Garurumon, even though his level went back to one. And Gary the Garurumon can learn skills that only Garurumon can learn. So Gabumon has a set of skills that when he reaches certain levels, he will always learn as a Gabumon. Garurumon has the same thing. All Digimon do. And those skills you learn through leveling up in one form can be kept. 
where you can have six of those skills. So you can have five skills plus the unique skill. And then you have a bank of, I believe, 10 or maybe 12 skills that you can have in the background that are not active, but you, he can still, that you can like swap out. And then eventually when you reach more skills than that, you have to start making choices about what he knows and what he doesn't know. I haven't quite gotten that many skills on one Digimon yet, but I'm getting very close to that being a concern about having to forget certain skills and like and morphing that side of him. So that that's something we're thinking about now is, oh, every time he digivolves, he keeps some skills and like I need to pay attention to that because all my other Digimon that I'm also doing with this process with simultaneously, which again is like 32 Digimon that I'm all managing this stuff with simultaneously, that they're all digivolving and they're all on doing their own fucking thing. We're just zooming in on our sad little lonely Gary the Gururumon. So... Gary the Gurumon's leveling up. His max level is like 37, 40, something like that. And we're getting up there, and we start noticing something that's slightly disconcerting as we're starting to reach the level cap, is that Gary the Gurumon's working pretty well, but now we're getting into harder fights, and we need a better, higher version of a Digimon, and we really want to Digivolve Gurumon into War Gurumon, or Where Gurumon, depends on if you want the Japanese version or the English version. So we want him to level up to the next version of Gurumon, Digivolve to the next version, Reset his level back to one and be like really, really cool again. But we're having a hard time getting the stats we need to do that because all the different Digivolution stats are the, the, the prerequisites for different Digivolutions are different. And we're looking at like there's five different ones we could be. Some of those we have the requisites for, some of them we don't. But we're looking at that Wargarumon. It's like, I really liked that show when I was a kid. I want a Wargarumon, but I can't quite get it yet because you just don't have the stats. Well, what am I going to do? Well, there's a left side of this Digivolution screen that I haven't been talking about at all. I've just been talking about like the form, the, your current form, and the form you're turning into. But you, this, Digimon are very complicated. They're not fucking Pokemon. They don't just go up this ladder. They go up this ladder. They go down this ladder. They go to the left. They go to the right. It's fucking wide open, man. The Digivolution tree is your fucking ocean. You do whatever you want. So we have Gary the Gurumon, but we want to make him more Gurumon. Can't quite do that yet. But maybe if we de-digivolve him, in, but not quite into a Gabumon, because we already had a Gabumon. We have the Gabumon skills. But there's another Digimon. There's Alekmon, who's a little, like, he kind of looks like a red Pikachu almost. And that's a different type of Digimon that could have digivolved into Gururumon if we had been focusing on a totally different one. And so we're like, well, maybe if we de-digivolve Gururumon into Alekmon, now we will get these lightning skills. And look at this. What has happened is now we have Gary the Alekmon, and his level cap is not like 37. Now it's like 55. Because it's not you just digivolving up is not what increases your level cap. It's you digivolving period increases a stat called the ability stat, which is a stat that always sticks with the Digimon, that as that goes higher, the level cap that he can reach goes higher. So now we've de-digivolved to Alekmon, which is a weaker version of the Digimon. So Gary's not necessarily in the fights anymore, but we can still level him up back at the farm or in our backpack. And, like, he's can Digivolve up, get more and more powerful, and then when you learn his skills, because he has a heal skill that's very useful. So we level him up to get the heal skill. And then we, we Digivolve him back into Gururumon. So Gary is a Gururumon once again. Or we could Digivolve him into one of the other Digimon that Electmon can Digivolve into and just go a different, completely different path. But we don't want to do that. We want to get our War Gururumon. So we Digivolve him back into a Gururumon, level him up again, to, and now we're leveling him past the limit that he could have been at before. To get to the point where we now have the stats, it's like, all fucking right. Now we can Digivolve him into Wargarurumon, which is a really powerful Digimon. This has, like, his own, like, really high-level skills he can learn. And it's like, and now his level cap is, like, 60. 
and it's like we can level him up and level him up, and then like eventually we maybe want to digivolve him into Metal Garurumon, which but that's even more difficult. That requires even more stats. So now we maybe we take a step back. Maybe we de-digivolve Gary. Maybe we digivolve Gary then again into like a completely adjacent form. Maybe we decide we don't want Metal Garurumon. Maybe we decide we want him to be something completely different. Gary's life from that point on is yours to choose. You can make him fucking whatever you want him to be. And you will completely forget that he was ever a little Gabumon. You will completely forget that he was ever Garurumon. He will only ever be Gary to you, whatever Gary happens to be in that very specific moment. And that's just one of the Digimon you have. That's, that's one out of like the 30-something that I am like currently taking care of in my game. Sean. Yeah. You never get to accuse me of pitching a topic for this podcast that is too niche for our audience. Ever. But do you see, Jonathan? I see. Do you I see? just want to point that out because I can feel subscribers dropping from this podcast. Have you... You've, you've played Pokemon games. But here's the thing. We're gaining other ones, I'm sure, because yes. someone just got off to that. Oh, I did. That's <laughs> like... Keeping that straight for myself is hard. And remember, like, fuck, doing that with all these fucking different Digimon at the same time. It's oh my god, this fucking be- crazy, Jonathan. It's fucking crazy. Like, Pokemon is for toddlers. This shit is hard fucking core. It's madness. What the hell? How? Oh. This is amazing. How did this game get made? This this is crazy. I don't know, man. It's fucking. Like, the, the point where I'm at with this game, we're realizing... It's like that thing where it's like, I know how much I don't know. It's like, I've, like, peeked over the edge. Because, like, that revelation of, like, de-digivolving and, like, being a, going backwards, which then raise your, raises your potential cap that you can then, like... The life of your Digimon completely fucking changes. And it's like, like, their form is completely mutable. Like, it doesn't matter. Like, they are whatever you need them to be for the moment. And it's like, I have so many different fucking Digimon... Doing totally different things, pushing them down different paths because you need so many different kinds at once. Like I said, with those three different like sort of rock paper scissors trinities, like you need if you are into the hard fights, you really need a bunch of different Digimon, and you can swap your three active battle Digimon's all at the same time using one move. So like in one like turn for like one Digimon, instead of using an attack, you can completely switch out your battle party. On the fly this, to a totally to like your like whole like legion of Digimon you have in your backpack. See, this all terrifies me because this sounds like something I would really like. <laughs> yeah, I think you would like. I've it's again some of the the story stuff I wish was sharper, but that moment How? where I realize, oh my god, like the the potential for this like evolution system and how like. How much that, like, completely blows away whatever Pokemon has done and whatever, like, Persona has done with their systems that are, like, I like for those games. But this is, like, like I said, this, this is that stuff on crack. This is, like, moving around that, like, evolution tree and, like, hopping to, between different branches. Like, and it also makes it very easy then to get a lot of different kinds of Digimon if you want to, like, fill out your compendium or whatever. Because it's, like, you are getting so many so fast through all the Digivolution stuff. It's fucking crazy. It's it's frankly amazing this game even has a story. They had time to write one, yeah. given all the other shit they had to do. And and you get to go around and be the fucking cyber sleuth, which and, that is still fun to say. And let me guess, this game is like a huge hit in Japan. I hope so. I mean, it's it's like the sixth ver- like entry into a Digimon story like series. Like this is not the first one of the. I this might not even be the first one that came out over here. I'm not sure. I think it is. 
So it's, it's just like, funny to me that it's so rare that anything, frankly, relatively cerebral takes off in American games. Yeah. That you would have like something like The Witcher that gets big. But in Japan, it's like, no, the more complex, the better. Yeah, like these systems are are insane. It's like it's that thing where it's like the one of the main things I've always complained about with Pokemon is or there's two things. It's like I've always thought it sucks that we're still limited to four moves in Pokemon games. And the shittiest thing about Pokemon games that has always been against what I feel like the spirit of the franchise is, and but it's never been actually good at doing in the games, is that is using a wide variety of different Pokemon. Because every Pokemon game I've ever played, it felt like I had X to do... Y fix that. Maybe, yeah. Maybe it gets better now. But like, the, all those other Pokemon games up to that point that I played was like three or four of them. Like three or four different generations. It always was like, I want to use all these different Pokemon. It's like, it seems like it's a lot of fun and all of them are really cool. Okay, not all of them are really cool. But a lot of them are very cool. I'm, I'm very invested in them. But the winning strategy for like every Pokemon game is to level up your starter Pokemon basically exclusively and maybe have like one other Pokemon in case like there's like a really strong fight against someone that your main guy is not good for that it's like you kind of have in the background. It's like I've only ever had like two Pokemon basically ever leveled up and one that's really the one that I use. You yeah, know? and that's very true of all of them. X and Y did a number on that and, and I, those games are honestly the most fun to play in the series because of that. But yeah, like for instance, I ditched my starter in X and Y. I mean, that's how they did I mean, it. yeah, but with like Digimon where I'm right, at right now, I don't even know which one was my starter. I don't even fucking know. I don't know. He got fucking lost at some point. I think I might have digivolved him into Ikakumon, who's like uh, a big woolly mammoth looking dude. I'm not 100% sure what happened. Because you can't, you can name them. So it's like, I haven't quite done that yet. But you, like I said, like, like naming him Gary, like you could name your Digimon whatever you want them to be. And I, I assume that name sticks when you digivolve them. So it's like, that might be like a more viable path if you want to remember that stuff. But like I said, I don't even know. I don't even know what happened to him. He's still there. Like you don't abandon Digimon at any point. It's just okay. We we have got to move on just because yeah. this could be our longest podcast ever if we don't. Okay. But holy shit. Yeah. I was... just you see why I needed to get that off my chest. Oh, I get it. Yeah. Yeah. I need to talk about this fucking game, man. This game blew my. So this is, this is going to be like your game of the year, right? I, who knows? Who knows? I don't know how... Like, I'm only like 20 hours in. <laughs> That's, this, this, this is not a 20-hour long game. No, I was looking it up. It's like 60 days. Yeah. I'm yeah. curious. So we'll, okay. we'll see where that goes. My, my strange little adventure that I've been on. Again, I had no plans ever to play that game. Tomb Raider did this to me. Okay. We're going to take a break. You guys aren't. You're going to keep hearing. I need to like cool off after that. That was crazy. Okay, we're back. Um... I'm going to talk about Fire Emblem now. Okay. As I was just telling you, Sean, my thoughts are all over the place. I had an organized, like, this is what I'm going to talk about. And then your Digimon thing threw me off. So. Okay. Yeah. All right. Uh, Fire Emblem. Fire Emblem Fates is the new game in the series. just came out. Uh, much higher profile release than Digimon Cyber Sleuth. Yes. But anyway. In Digimon fact, Story Cyber Sleuth. Thank you very much. Yes. Uh, Fire Emblem Fates, actually, I, a news item we can talk about. It sold really well in the United yes. States. Yeah. Did, uh, I mean, it's kind of funny. This is a series that was on the brink of death with Awakening. They specifically made Fire Emblem Awakening, which was the big 2013 3DS game, as a final game in the series because they thought that was it. And if they didn't meet a certain sales threshold, they knew they were done. And then it blew that out of the water and was the highest selling in the series and was this gigantic hit. And so we're back for round two. And I have expressed before my love for Fire Emblem Awakening on this podcast. It's probably still my favorite 3DS game. I think it's one of my favorite games ever. I think it is 
most people who would play it would agree it's kind of just an all-timer. Like, it is... I think you could argue whether or not it's the best Fire Emblem game, but it's just so good at what it does. It feels like one of those revelatory moments in the life of a series. And that's the tough part about doing a sequel to that, is that, well, what do you do when you have a game that didn't quite reinvent the franchise? I wouldn't say Awakening, like, the core gameplay is still the core gameplay. Yeah. But by adding on the main systems Awakening added on was really fleshed out sort of the map system where you have more sort of extra battles you can do to grind on the map if you want to do that kind of as you say more of what the sacred stones did on gba yeah and then the big thing was the character interactions where now you could always have your units kind of fight together in fire emblem which is a tactical rpg so it's like a grid it's a little bit like chess only more complex and your units are characters and if they die they're dead forever yes unless you're a pussy and play in casual mode in which case fuck you but anyway because that's not fire emblem no yeah like if someone dies in Fire Emblem, you either finish that fight and move on, or you fucking play that fight all over again if you want yes. to live. Yes, yeah. absolutely. That's how it works. Anyway, so um, Awakening added. So it did much more with the characters where your units, if you had them fight together, they would eventually they would uh, pair up and they would like have this stat go up that would be like their union stat. And then on the home screen, you could, on like the main screen, you could go into your support and in between battles, they would talk to each other and they would have these little fun conversations and they would grow affinities, and if your characters were of opposite genders, they would get married, and they, so they could be a couple. And this is important that it had to be opposite genders, because then they would have kids, and because Awakening involved time travel, the kids would come back in time, and they would be adults, and you could fight with them now. And they could get married, but they couldn't have kids, because then that would be a never-ending <laughs> yeah. cycle. So they didn't do that. Um, and all of that, like I explained at the time, it honestly feels like a, a revelation on par with like what Persona does, marring like day-to-day life sim with JRPG tropes, which is that what you do in the JRPG fuels that, you know, day-to-day life sim and vice versa and gives both sides more meaning. Fire Emblem has become half-dating sim in some way, half-soap opera, and it really just adds this extra weight because if you have, you know, your married couple and one of them dies on the battlefield at the end of a fight, you've got a fucking choice to make. Can you live with that? And you're much more invested in those two than you would have been in, like, Fire Emblem GBA, you know, because... There's just, you've seen more from them, and the writing is so good. Um, or you have to restart and let one of them live, in which case you're playing 40 minutes all over again. Yeah. So, I love the Fire Emblem series. I've played all the ones I can easily play in the United States. Um, some of them, like Path of Radiance on GameCube, go for like 250 on eBay. So, maybe one day, but not today. So anyway, I uh, love these games. One of my, as I've said before, it might just be on a pure gameplay level. The, my favorite minute-to-minute gameplay. I love this tactical yeah. RPG kind of thing, which is why I have to get into XCOM. One day I have to play Final Fantasy Tactics. Yeah. All that stuff. Yeah. But anyway, really love it. Um, and obviously Fire Emblem Awakening being as good as it was, it's really exciting to finally get kind of the sequel to that, which is Fire Emblem Fates. And as with most games in the Fire Emblem series, this is not a direct sequel because there's no way you could do a narrative follow-up to Awakening. It has yeah. a very definitive ending. Um, so this is a different story. Imagine It's like an anthology kind of thing, kind of like Final Fantasy, where... Final Fantasy 4 is not in the same world as Final Fantasy 1, yeah. but they're the same series. Um, but Fates, other than that, it is a sequel to Awakening. Like, I think there was some questioning, like, how much of it would it be? Because there's this weird system with it where there's kind of three games in one, and we'll talk about that. But it is very much a sequel to Awakening. And I think my conclusion, having played all of Birthright, which is one of the two main games, and a chunk of Conquest, is that this is not on par with Awakening. I think Birthright on its own is my least favorite Fire Emblem game. Hmm. But it's still really good. Like, it is polished to hell. 
It is mechanically very, very fun and satisfying to play. And what it does well, it does at a level that is very high. Right. I do think it falls short of Awakening in some ways. I think trying to continue some of the systems of Awakening with the story they chose to tell in Fates, it always feels uneasy to me. There's something oh, about yeah. it that doesn't... I don't know if it was right to tell this story as a mechanical sequel to Awakening, and we'll talk about that more later. Okay. But it is the kind of thing where it's just tough. You have to make a sequel to this massively successful, massively beloved game. What the hell do you do? And I think these are fascinating examples if you look at like Majora's Mask or Super Mario Sunshine and the different ways people go out on a limb when they do this. And I would say Fates is in some ways conservative in keeping Awakening, and in some ways it is one of the most ambitious major games I've played in years. Because of what it does. And that ambition comes in the form of its release strategy. Where Fire Emblem Fates, if you're not familiar, is technically three different games. It's a trilogy of games under the Fire Emblem Fates banner. And the two you can buy right now, the main retail releases, are Fire Emblem Fates Birthright and Fire Emblem Fates Conquest. And the whole conceit is that you play as Corrin. You can name yourself whatever you want, but that's the default name. Name him Gary. You can name him Gary. You very well could. Gary the Tactician. It would be, <laughs> yeah, you could be Corin. You're Corin, and you are raised in this kingdom called Nor, and Nor is a war-hungry kingdom. They're kind of, their king is sort of evil, and you've been raised in seclusion, but you love your brothers and sisters. They're all very loving, and you have this good family, but you learn in events through the first six chapters of the game that you were actually born in Hoshiro, which is the sort of neighboring peaceful kingdom that just wants to live in peace, but they're being attacked by Nor, and something bad goes down, and then... Your two families meet in the battlefield, and you have a choice to make, which is do you side with your birth family and play with Hoshido, or do you side with your um, you know, adoptive family and play with Nor? And if you play with Nor, it's Conquest, which is the harder of the two games, and if you side with Hoshido, you play Birthright, which is the easier of the two. Right. And, so, and they are separate games that you can buy, but you don't need to buy them both at full cost, because let's say you buy Birthright. Okay. You buy Birthright, then at that split point, or from the main menu... You can buy Conquest at for $20 instead of 40 The base game is 40 You can buy the other campaign for 20 So it's a discounted price. And at that game, the, the two sides of it together is $60, which I'm just going to answer this right now. Is it worth the extra money? Yes. If you have the two campaigns, it's 60 bucks. That's a normal retail release of a, of a console game. Yeah. And Birthright on its own, I rushed through it a little bit to get done for this podcast, and I played 34 hours. So How does that compare to Awakening? Is it A little shorter, but okay. I rushed in some places. Right. But so it's more or less comparable to Awakening. Yeah. The so completely worth it. Yeah. Like, if anything, charging you just twenty for the extra campaign is being nice. Like, yeah. I, it could be worth eighty. And certainly, the development cost of this game had to be off the charts for what I mean. It all uses the underlying engine, and some of the maps repeat between the two. Yeah. But all different characters. The amount of writing is staggering. If you think of all the support conversations, because the right. units are different between the two, which means the marriages are different, which means the kids are different. All this stuff is different, plus the, just the main storyline. There's a you know metric fuck ton of writing in this game. And there's a third campaign, which is sort of like the true ending, where you don't choose either side, but you try to get them to work together. That's not out yet in the United States. It's going to come out in two weeks from now, because it's been one week since the release. It's called Fire Emblem Fates Revelation, and that is a DLC only, which is another 20, which will bring the price up to 80 if you got all of them. I still think... If you like Fire Emblem, that's a pretty good value for the amount of yeah. hours you could pour into that. Yeah, because it's because it seems like I mean because you've beaten Birthright. Do, do you feel like if someone bought Birthright and was like 
only really interested, like, didn't have enough Fire Emblem in them to play all of them, and they just played Birthright, would that, like, does the story and all of that just feel like, yeah, you can just do that and it feels totally fine? Yes, I think you would say it's a lesser Fire Emblem game. Sure, yeah. But it could would, be, yes. yeah, it could be even if the other ones yeah. didn't exist. Right. It's a beginning, middle, end. Okay. It's a good ending. It's, so it it's doesn't just end with, like, a cliffhanger that's like, if you want to see the real no. ending, you've got to play Revelations. There is a brief moment where they intimate that there's more going on. Okay. But not in a bad way. It's not like if you got the false ending of one of the Persona games and then had to buy the rest of it. Yeah, yeah. It's not like that okay. at all. That's good. Yeah. Uh, and I will say, I'm glad I've started playing Conquest because I do think once you start to see the bigger tapestry of what they're doing, this game rises in my estimation a lot. Cool. And Conquest is, to me, clearly the better of the two, but I haven't played as much of it. So we'll get into that. But I played all of Birthright. Uh, I did. I was playing it pretty in-depth. It's about 28 chapters. And I was playing it pretty in-depth up until about chapter 22, and that was Thursday night. And then I realized i, I got to get through this because I really would like to finish it and play some of Conquest before we talk on the podcast. Right. So I kind of rushed, and I was playing it on hard and I did sh- swap the difficulty down to normal sure. just to finish the last few chapters because I could have beaten them on hard. It would have been... John, I'm not going to fault you for beating a game on normal. That's yeah. totally fine. That's, yeah. That is 100% acceptable. Yes. So anyway, um, and I will say, I think there's been a lot made about how Conquest is harder. Definitely is. Conquest is a fucking bitch. But Birthright is also harder than Awakening. I would oh, say. Okay. Now, my first playthrough of Awakening I did on normal, but I have replayed Awakening on hard. I thought Birthright was harder overall. Okay. So I do think they've upped the difficulty a little bit. I do think casual gamers or who haven't played Fire Emblem before could probably do fine with Birthright. It's not like it's... Conquest is punishing. If you have not played Fire Emblem, do not play Conquest. It is okay. hardcore classic Fire Emblem in a lot of ways. So, And I like that, but I can understand how it might not be for everyone. I mean, that's part of the challenge of Fire Emblem Fates is that the game, this series now has a platform and a sales level where you can't just pitch it to super hardcore gamers. Right, yeah. Um, and, I think, and I think the entire conceit of Fates is kind of clever in catering to lots of different groups. But yeah, yeah so where do I want to start with this? Well, I'll start with like before the Switch because I actually bought Conquest as my base game. Because just reading the pre-release stuff, I thought that one sounds more interesting to me. If I have to prioritize one of the two, I'll play Conquest. Okay. Now, the one thing I am annoyed about, I wish they just had, like, digitally or as a cartridge, something that just gave you everything, even if I had to pay a hundred bucks for it, because it doesn't, the game, the choice matters. Like, it doesn't feel like I want that choice made for me by what I bought. Right, okay, so, yeah, so you, so the first six chapters are the same no matter what, then you reach a branching point. Yes. So even if you bought Fire Emblem Conquest, when you reach that branching point, if you want to play Birthright... You have like in like that you reach that choice of like oh the story thing I want to follow is actually birthright. Yes. You then have to pay like the twenty bucks to download birthright. Yeah, but you can do it. Yeah. So yeah. which is nice. Yeah. Okay. So that's, that's how interesting. Works. Yeah, and that's what happened to me because huh. I was playing Conquest and I was getting into my RPG mode where I'm role playing. Yeah. And I'm playing as Corin and I actually think the prologue is really good. Like not the prologue chapter, but the first six chapters. Yeah. I think it's really good. It does basically three of those chapters. You're with your Nor family. Three with the Hoshido family. And it's a nice split where I think you get to know them pretty well. The one failing in terms of setting things up, and this isn't a problem going forward with Conquest, but in the setup, Nor comes off as so unbelievably evil mm-hmm. that you have to... I, I just knew like two chapters in, it's like, I'm not playing with Nor. For my first playthrough where I'm just role-playing and I want to go naturally, yeah. I'm going to have to play Birthright. Because sure. I would not, in my right mind, even if I grew up with these people... I wouldn't side with the kingdom that wants to destroy the world, basically. Bad I, shit goes you down. Know, yeah, that seems like a reasonable choice. Yeah. 
And then I kind of was thinking, well, I'm going to play all of them anyway, and maybe playing Birthright, which is sort of the simpler one, then going into Conquest, then Revelation. That's probably the right way. And yeah, because honest... it seems like it would be weird, like, stepping down to get to Birthright, and yes. then, like, going, like, two steps up for the Revelations one. That and having, up. yeah, and having played some of Conquest now, I would say it feels like the developers, if they were to tell you what the overall intended arc was, it's Birthright, Conquest, Revelation. I think that's probably how they would want you to play it. Because even just going back and replaying now and playing the Conquest side, it feels like knowing what happened in Birthright matters to me. And maybe that would be true if I played Conquest and Birthright. Yeah. But going from kind of the unambiguously good side to the more ambiguous side, there's something to that that I think is very intentional. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. yeah. So that's like my one complaint about the opening chapters, but they're really well mounted as a production. There's a lot of good stuff that goes there. And, you know, I just replayed last night when I started Conquest, the chapter six, which is the branching chapter. That chapter is one of the finest moments in the Fire Emblem series because hmm. they make you feel that blow of, no worry, oh, have God, I have to make this choice between one family or the other. It's really well done. And even going back, because there's a really nice option on the menu. You don't have to keep your chapter six save. It'll keep it for you. Oh, and you just nice. go to yeah. the branch of fates options and it takes you to chapter six. You don't have to replay it all. That was going to be my next question yeah. is if they have that. Yep. And even having not replayed those first five chapters just jumping into six i just felt the wrenchingness of it especially because i was suddenly trying to kill the people i'd spent 34 hours playing with and that's kind of the brilliance of fire Emblem fates i think on yeah one that's level. that's cool and then i imagine it then will be like doubly satisfying when you beat conquest and then like you do revelations just like can't we all just get along yes like can't we just fucking talk for one second, guys? Yep. Well, and like, and now all the people I'm playing with on the Conquest side, I met as enemies in Birthright. So there's something very fun and clever about that. Um, but then once you get into it with Birthright... I'll stick on Birthright for a little okay. bit. Um, Birthright is a very... It's very similar to Awakening. It's a very traditional Fire Emblem game. Most of the maps, the, the goal is to, as they say, route to the enemy. I love that phrase. Yeah. We must route them. It's great. And uh, so you just, it's a big map, you've got to kill all the enemies, all that stuff. Um, I think the map design is generally pretty good, not to me on par with Awakening, which just has some really creative and well-done maps, um, but generally pretty good. There's some I thought were frustrating, not for the right reasons, and some that were really brilliant and really great. So, very good overall. Um, where the game suffers in some weird ways is on the narrative level, where Awakening had this perfect harmony to everything, because Awakening takes place over years, it's a very long story. It's kind of like its own trilogy because Awakening has three pretty clear phases to it mm. where there's time gaps in between and sort of who you're fighting changes and life goes on. And so having the, the con conceit of that... And, and the whole opening is that um, the main characters in that game, Krom and, and the, the, the fighters in that world, they start as what they call... They call themselves the shepherds because they just roam the land looking for people to help. And that's how Robin is found, and that's how Awakening starts. Right. So there's no like urgency to Awakening until you know later in the game. And so if you're just going around the land trying to figure things out, your troops falling in love and having babies and the time travel and all that, it feels right. Like it doesn't feel like this massive missing piece where like you know it's not like there shouldn't be that space. If you right, go from yeah. one fight to the next, there seems like there is space in the game for these things to happen, and so it all feels very natural and organic and of a piece. And taking those exact same systems and putting them on Fates, I'm not sure works. Because Fates is a very concentrated timeline. Like with Birthright, it probably would have to take place in more time than this. But it feels like it, the whole story happens in a month. Like oh, it's yeah. really quick. It's very sort of, it's a much more intimate story than Awakening. It's not this massive story of sort of this kingdom in upheaval. It's this, 
immediate conflict between these two warring nations and you are this small guerrilla group trying to figure shit out. Which is fine. And I think if this were like one of the GBA games and done that way, that would be perfect. Yeah. But you add on like they're talking, you know, and immediately I've got my troops together and they're talking and the hearts come up and then I have a support conversation I can do. And it's like, well, we just like had this massive blow that happened here and now we're trying to get to this next area because something urgent is happening. Why are we sitting around doing like target practice and shit? Like it right. just got into my head. And I don't think that standard would be there if Awakening didn't create the standard, you know? Yeah. And so that's a little weird. Then the child stuff makes no fucking sense because, you know, you would have to have your troops, the, the woman would have to get pregnant, nine months, birth, and then their whole conceit of how the children come back to talk to you is not time travel, but there's this whole thing, I'll explain in a minute, where you have this, like, sub-dimension you go into, the, <laughs> the astral realm, which, okay, is where, okay, yeah. which is where your castle feature exists. Anyway, one of your friends is named Lilith. She turns out to be an astral dragon. She opens a realm for you. It happens. It's, it's weird how much more accepting I am when, instead of you saying sub-dimension, as soon as you said astral realm, I was like, okay, yeah, sure. That, yeah. that makes 100% sense. If it was you said another dimension, it's like, no, the astral realm, well, yeah, I'm with you. So their explanation is that when your troops start having children, they hide the kids so they don't, they, they can't take the kids on the battlefield with them. So what they do is they put them in a deep realm, which is another astral dimension where people will take care of them, but they grow up really fast. And then once they're uh, adults, they kind of want to come out and fight with you. And that's what happens. Okay. Kind of a silly game thing. It's just the time frame of fates, of birthright at least, is so compressed. It distracted me kind of every step of the way. The other thing is that I don't feel like on a writing level their heart is in that as much this time because it's just like Awakening is kind of about genealogy and family in a way that Fates kind of is not. And so some of the stuff, like some of the kid characters, there's one in particular I love and her name is Kana and she is Corin's daughter. And I'll talk about that in a little bit because Kana had a tragic ending in my game. But okay. I loved Kana. I thought she was a great character. Some of the others pop in really interesting ways. And they're actually really good units because they come to you very powerful. But overall, it felt like they're a very incidental part of the game. And this leads to my other big complaint, which is that permadeath is obviously still a thing. You can play in casual or classic mode. I understand why they have to include casual mode, and I'm fine with it because you're not forced to use it. But you yeah. got to play classic. You yeah. Know? I mean, if you're someone who doesn't have a huge amount of time to invest into fire, yes. I think casual mode is probably something nice. Yes. I'm, I'm glad that it's there. Yeah, I know it's fine. And... Here's the problem, though. It, it, this is true of... In every Fire Emblem game, there are a couple characters who don't die on the battlefield. They retire. Yeah. Because they have to be there for the story. It makes sense. They can't write infinite branching paths. Yeah. So if a character dies, they'll just... You assume they took a really bad wound. They, like, lost a leg. I always add story to it in my head. Sure, yeah. And now they can't fight, but they follow you around. Most of the characters in Fates retire and don't die. Oh, okay. I would say the vast majority. And oh. that's a little disappointing to me. I understand why, because the... Family dynamics are so important to Fates because you have your two families, your Hoshido family and your Nor family. They're kind of the core cast of characters. Then they have their retainers and people. They kind of have to be around. So I think it probably wasn't even their intention at first. I think it's probably a snowballing effect. Yeah. And I think if they were making one of these games instead of three, they probably could have found a way to let characters die and have substitutions in the writing. Because there are pretty easy ways I think you could do it, but I also see how the effort for that would just snowball to impossible dimensions right so that's a little disappointing to me because a lot of the deaths don't mean a whole lot and don't make a whole lot of sense because the character will still be around yeah um so that's a little disappointing and the problem with the kid characters is that they do die the kids all die and that gets right. really fucking dark yeah when you consider that your kid 
By the end of my playthrough of Birthright, and again, I rushed through the end, so things happened. Most of the kids were dead, and most of the adults were still there. So they're all coming home from war, and all their children grew up in like a compressed nine-month period, came to the battlefield and died. How traumatized would those people be? I mean, I don't know. How much can you really love your kid if you send them to go live in the hyperbolic time chamber for 16 years? Like, <laughs> That's pretty seriously. much it, yeah. Anyway, so that's kind of a weird thing. But uh, Do they find a good way to like try to like have a story moment or something when one of the kids dies that like like obviously the because you have your parents are the char- or like one of your some of your main characters that would be a really huge story event if that was like something that was scripted to happen. Do they find some way to no. try to do that? No, they're not, they're just not mentioned. Like that's the other problem is that the kids just aren't that integrated into the story. Yeah. So they they seem very unnecessary and kind of a vestigial part of the game. Whereas most of the kids aren't main characters in Awakening, but Lucina is, and that's why it's important. Is one of the three main characters in the game. You've got Crom, Robin, and Lucina. Lucina is Crom's daughter who comes from the future, and she's the leader of all the kids. And just having that one character who yeah. is kind of there makes everyone else feel grounded, and there isn't an equivalent in Fates, and I think that's a flaw, because ultimately I would say I kind of like having it. I like some of those kids. They should have found a different way to do it or erase it entirely. I don't think it's necessary for Fates. Yeah, because I feel like my reaction would be when as soon as I realize that when the kids die, there's not some sort of, they didn't script some scene that like the parents then get something that's like, Oh God, like my only son, like what have I done? Why did I bring you? Like if they don't like have like something like that, I feel like as soon as I realize that, I'm like, okay, kids are disposable. Like it's fine. Like they're only like the, the only impact is in my own imagination and I'm completely in control of that. Like it doesn't, if the, the game does not respond in some way, like really negatively when the kids die, I wouldn't fucking care. Like let the kid, let him die, let him die. And I, and I should say, I'm okay with Fire Emblem leaving room for the imagination. That's part of the magic yeah. of the series to me, is that you invent kind of sub-narratives for all your characters. Sure. But it goes a little too far on Fates on that level. Yeah, because it's like, that's something that's so extreme that it's yes. like, it would... Like, because there's no way you can, like, really properly account for it. But I feel like you would need at least one scene, you know? And, and this is... I'll just skip to it with Birthright. This is what happened. It was like chapter 22 or something. You're on the side of this massive volcano. It's a really cool chapter. It's also, I think, probably the longest fight in the game. Hmm. And it took me a while to beat. I was still playing on hard mode at this point. I finally got through the chapter. I'd lost two units, both of them kids, steadily. Didn't care about them too much. And I was like... I was trying to get them to romance, and they both died in battle. And it was like... But I kind of had to let them die to progress through the level. Sometimes that happens in Fire Emblem, and you just... So I was like, okay. But then, in the final part where we're fighting the boss, Kana, my favorite unit, she's Corrin's daughter, she's awesome. She fell, I did not... It was like a fluke thing where the dice just did not roll in my favor, and I was fucking heartbroken, but I didn't know what to do. I had spent all night trying to beat this chapter. This, This one play probably took me 40 minutes. Right. It's like, if I redo this, I don't know if I can redo this for one. I have to get through this for the podcast... What do I do? Like, I was so torn up. Like, there's something about deaths in Fire Emblem. Even if the game hasn't put attention on them, you get attached. Sure. And it hurts. It just hurts on this subliminal level. And so I was just like, okay. And I, I went through and I went on to the next chapter. But I just felt dead inside. And weirdly, Corin has something that happens not related to Kana. But that, that makes him kind of feel the same way. So I kind of felt at one with Corin, But I also felt like... Man, if Corrin lost his daughter, I would have no will to go on. Yeah. And I kind of had no will to go on in the game, and I kind of realized there's something flawed about the construction of this game that that happens, and the game 
I'm sad, but the, I'm not sad for the reasons the game wants me to be. Yeah, there's like, it's almost like a really weird version of ludonarrative dissonance. Yes. Like, not in the way that we usually talk about with, like, Uncharted yeah. and stuff like that and yeah. killing people in the narrative, not properly accounting for it. It's like, you have gotten attached to these characters in, it, because there is such a huge focus on in, in Fire Emblem. There always was, it seems like. It's much more so in these games. There's a huge focus on these characters and their relationships. And so... When a character does die, which happens all the time in Fire Emblem, like, it's a big impact for you because of what you've invested in and how much you like the characters, but the game can't respond to those feelings you're having in any way, which is, like, a difficult problem because it would end up having to write and, like, script and voice act a huge amount of scenes dealing with, like, all these characters' deaths, but it feels like they're needs to be something there there needs to be something that like the game needs to acknowledge yes. in some way that like that huge thing happened especially when you get kids involved like that's a whole other step it's an area where on birthright at least i think the game stretches itself too thin and can't fully account for everything right. and so i finished that chapter kind of died finished the next chapter it was also really hard got to the one after that i considered going back for kana because that's the other thing she was really strong and it was harder without her this is one other thing. If you lose a unit, you also have to think about the tactical yeah. loss there. So anyway, I thought about going back. I actually tried. Could not beat that level again. At that point, I switched the game down to normal and finished it uh, the next day. And the ending's got a lot of good stuff. I did... There's a difficulty spike even on normal in the last chapter that is kind of ludicrous. And they do something like old school Fire Emblem where you can't... You have to play the last two chapters of the game without any saving. And that's oh, geez, so you can't yeah. save between. And most of my team died in the final chapter because usually I play every chapter a couple times. I have to restart because you have to kind of learn the map and it's just how you do it. You can't do that with the epilogue unless you want to play both of the final chapters. And so, like, you know how every Fire Emblem game ends and it scrolls all your characters and says what they did after the game? Yeah. There was a chunk of, like, 20 characters in a row that was just retired in epilogue, retired in. And it was a lot of the kids. It was a lot of my favorite characters. It was like... Oh, this war took a fucking toll. Hoshido yeah. does not have a lot of people left. <laughs> it was fucked up. But anyway, and I will probably... I, I, did, I kept my saves in the right places so I can go back and play Birthright, the ending, kind of proper at some point. Right. But anyway. Um, the other weird thing is that one of the other new features is that in between battles, where you go isn't the world map. You go to a, the My Castle screen. And that is sort of the big new feature they're promoting with Fates. And it's this is where Lilith, the astral dragon, this is where she takes you, and it's your astral realm, and you can build your own castle and and all this stuff. I would really like to meet an astral dragon. That sounds like fun. She's cool. And anyway, it's it's a cool concept. It's kind of fun to build your castle out. That's where you kind of you can build your own store. You don't have to go around the map searching for merchants. That's nice. All this stuff. So I think mechanically, there's a lot of really smart stuff about the my castle screen because yeah. Not having to go search the world map for the right merchant and then seeing if they're even open or whatever and, and spending the money. Just having it all consolidated. It makes a little less narrative sense, but it's fine. It does, though, it's another ludonarrative dissonance thing, a weird one where I don't think these characters would just go to their astral plane and hang out. Right. And if, <laughs> if it were just a thing where you were there and it's just where you did management, I wouldn't mind it. It would just be a silly video game thing. But all your characters are there with you and you can do things like go talk to them and interact with them and get boosts and stuff between them. And you can go to your quarters and this is where the infamous petting minigame would be. That right, yeah. cut out of the American release. That, by the way... Really weird because without the petting mechanic, those scenes make zero sense. Sure, yeah. Just like they should have just cut the whole thing if they couldn't do the petting game. As weird as that sounds, yeah. but anyway, so it is this big like that's where your characters interact and hang out. But there's this huge disconnect between what happens in the main chapters and where you are in. 
your My Castle, or frankly, the Paralogs, which is the side missions you do. That's mostly where you recruit children, but there's some other ones. It just doesn't feel like there's enough downtime in the story for any of this to ever happen. And Would you say it would be like if, like, in Persona 3, like, all the other characters went with you to the Velvet Room? Yes, that's perfect, yeah. yes. And then they never talked about it. Yeah, that, exactly, yeah. yes. Yeah. And in fact, Lilith has a big scene near the end of the story, and it was really weird to see her in the main story, and that other right, characters yeah. acknowledged her, because I had just kind of had to compartmentalize those two halves of the yeah, game. Yeah, because it's like, this side of the game exists entirely for the sake of this being a video game, and yeah, like, you just do that thing where it's like, it is not a part of this story. Like, it yeah. just exists because it needs to be here. Right. Yeah, that's weird. No, but that the Velvet Room analogy is a good one. It just, it doesn't really make sense, and I think... The pace of the game in some ways is improved by having that. But at a certain point I did kind of miss myself, find myself missing the world map. Because how they do the world map in this is just you leave your castle and it gives you a list of options and shows you a map, but you don't travel it. And I think that's simplified in some ways that I like because you can't really, you know, it's never going to get too dense for you. It doesn't sure, get too yeah. cluttered. But at the same time, I kind of got more into the characters in the story when I was literally traversing the map. Yeah, I get that. So yeah. it's, it's, you know, it's got its flaws. And again, I'm complaining about a lot of things here. Again, the core of the game is fantastic. You know, the actual minute-to-minute gameplay on the field, it's very good. I think the characters are less memorable than in Awakening, but they're still good. They're well-written. The support conversations are fun. A lot of it just doesn't live up to Awakening, and that's kind of the problem with doing a sequel that is mechanically this direct, is you're holding yourself up to a really high bar. I think you almost have to go in the direction of, like, Majora's Mask or something, where, all right... We're doing the same thing, but we're going psychedelic. Yeah. We're taking yeah. our fucking LSD and going, you know, crazy here. It's like, I drew this really sick picture of the moon, man. Let's put it in our game. Even like Super Mario Sunshine, not a game I particularly like, but I do understand and respect why they did the things they did there. Because sure, yeah. that would it's just so hard to follow up something like Mario 64. Yeah. And here I think they've made some good decisions and some bad ones. Uh, and, and the ending of the game is really good. The last chapter is really cool. The music throughout is phenomenal. It's, I think, probably on par with the Awakening music, if not better in some ways. And there are some great scenes interspersed throughout. So I definitely enjoyed it. I mean, I fucking mainlined this game in one week, Friday to Friday, 34 hours. That's a lot of gameplay in a short yeah. amount of time. So clearly I enjoyed it. But overall, I would say, yeah, Birthright just falls a little flat compared to some of the other Fire Emblem games because it seems like it's kind of stuck between... The simpler, more direct storytelling of the GBA games, which I really love, yeah. and the more fleshed-out story of Awakening, which I really love, but doesn't work with all story types. Yeah. So, like, if they do another... This will probably be the last Fire Emblem for the 3DS. I can't imagine there being another one, because yeah. I think we're probably in the 3DS's Twilight, but who knows? New Pokemon game announced. The sky's the limit. Um, but I think when they do the next one, I hope it's another reinvention. And typically that's sure, how Fire Emblem yeah. works. There really were, in America at least, only the two GBA games and they didn't, you know, the next one, which was on GameCube, is not a copycat of that or anything. Yeah. So they'll probably do something else. But I don't think this exact format would work again unless you had a story more akin to Awakening or in a way that accounts for it in some way. Yeah, like some of that Awakening stuff that you're talking about kind of reminds me of the post-Ocarina of Time Legend of Zelda games where in Ocarina of Time you obviously had the Ocarina mechanic which was really core to that game and it was really popular because it was like it's just like a really cool part of that game and then they kept that it still makes a lot of sense in Majora's Mask because that's a direct sequel but then they're like they kept a version of that mechanic in Wind Waker 
And then, like, they kept an even more, like, diluted version of that mechanic in Twilight Princess. It was just, like, you you don't understand, like, this mechanic was, like, really crucial to that game. But, like, it, there's a whole bunch of reasons why it worked in that game that it doesn't work in the sequels, necessarily. Like, you have to build everything around it for, the like, that thing to make sense. So that's when you're talking about, like, how the Awakening allowed, like, the kid stuff and all that to work. And how it doesn't birthright. It reminds me of that. Yeah, and I think that's the exact right comparison where it's, like... I still like this stuff, but I don't think it fits. Like, if I had yeah. to make the hard cuts, I would say this game would be better off being a pure Fire Emblem experience. Yeah. Which, you know, it's a sin of ambition. I mean, that's not yeah. a bad problem to have. It's just, it's an interesting problem. Now, talking about Conquest, or started Conquest, I do think it's a lot better. I think nice. there's, there's something about the narrative that even though I can't quite... Find Corin's logic for siding with Nor other than the emotional "these are my brothers and sisters" who I grew up with. Sure, if you can get past that hurdle, immediately the story clicks into place. Like, okay, this is why Corin would do it. There's something more vulnerable about Corin in this game because he can never be sure of that decision. With siding with Hoshido, it's tough, but you know you're with the good guys. Yeah. So even if you have to fight your brothers and sisters, you know you're doing it for a greater good. You never have that certainty in Conquest. You go back, King Garen, who is the main villain, who is your ostensible father in Nor, right. is angry with you for a number of reasons from that, those first six chapters. And he basically decides to send you off on a suicide mission to prove your loyalty to Nor. So that explains why Conquest is so difficult, because you're going on this series of kind of suicide tasks. Nice. And also, the story just is slightly less urgent, because you're going on one mission, then you kind of go, got to go back to Nor, you're going to be sent out on another mission. It's not like Birthright, where you are... Fighting for your life because your kingdom is about to be destroyed. It's minute to minute. You don't have time to go fucking, you know, fuck around with your kids in the deep realm. Yeah. And I don't think it'll make 100% sense in Conquest, but the pace just feels a little more relaxed. And frankly, a little more classic Fire Emblem to me. Yeah, like that story setup sounds more interesting to me with like yeah. the, your, the, the king sending you on suicide missions. Like that sounds yeah. different than other Fire Emblem games. Yes, and then the scenes are automatically just more interesting because Corrin is trying to negotiate a whole lot of different masters here which is that he wants to do the right thing but he's trying to do it in some ways with the wrong people which right. is that his friends in Nor are good and that you have this overall villain in King Garen and some of the power structure in Nor that is bad and you want to see if you can within this dark world do the right thing. Yeah like try to fix things from the inside. Yeah so like your first mission is you have to go suppress this um, rebellion in the ice uh, the Ice Tribe. Sure. And you actually visit the Ice Tribe late in Birthright. So this was kind of funny. You go there early in Conquest. And it's your one of your friends, Felicia, her sister lives there. And they are rebelling. And you have this fight. And you want to try to quell the rebellion without killing anyone. Now on the field, you still get them to zero HP. But they just don't yeah. die and then stuff happens. So you're trying to negotiate this peace. And it's a very interesting thing. Like it's automatically it's like there's more going on here. And then you have to go back to King Garen and try to negotiate you know, what's been done. And why you've done it. And then you're kind of sent on another suicide mission. And it's very interesting so far. And it is fucking hard. I The way Fire Emblem should be. This is, this is by far the hardest Fire Emblem game. And I, everyone I've seen online says that. Even who've played like all the fucking Japanese ones in sure. fan translations. This is fucking hard. I started on hard. The same difficulty I had on Birthright. And I changed it down to normal for the fight before the one I'm on right now and the one I'm on right now before this podcast I spent two hours playing that and Jeez. did not beat it I'm still on that it is the one I'm on right now is like it's only like chapter 10 out of the, yeah. in the game 
And you have to, the goal is not to rout the enemy, it's to survive 11 turns and defend this one position. And that sounds simple enough. Yeah, that's but not that new, many turns. But new enemies flock in, like six of them, every turn. You have a big space to defend and a lot of choices of where to go. And you have many fewer uh, units in, in Conquest. Not just on the field, but to choose from, at least at the beginning. Maybe I'll get more as I go along. Right. But, like, my choices are more limited. And I got really close right before I came. And I, I would have played it again and probably beat it, but I had to come do the podcast and... Maybe seeing it with a fresh set of eyes, I'll do fine. But I can tell Conquest is one where I, it's, you can't rush through it. Like, this is probably one where I'm going to have to go back to my old Fire Emblem standby of chapter a day and kind yeah. of make each one of those an event. Yeah. And the game rewards that because one of the main differences also is Birthright allows you, they have sub-challenges on the map that you can do between chapters. There's more paralog with all that stuff. This is more classic where you just go chapter to chapter. There are certain paralogs mostly related to the kids. But other than that, there are no opportunities to grind. All your XP, all your bonding has to be done in the main chapters, which are very challenging. This game gets hardcore very fast. And it is not fucking around. But it's very interesting. Like, the, the one before this that made me finally just turn it down to normal because I realized, okay, I could beat this on hard, but this would take me, like, months <laughs> to figure right. all this out. So, and I do ultimately want to finish it so I can review it and all this stuff. Um, and normal is not a walk in the park anyway. So, yeah. anyway... Um, that one was just fiendishly difficult, but really clever, and like immediately was so much more interesting than most of the map design in Birthright. So it's all there, it just wasn't necessarily there in the version of the game I played at first. So very interesting. I do think if you are at all interested in Fire Emblem but haven't played before, I wouldn't start with Fates. I think you should start with Awakening. Um, for one, Awakening teaches you how to play the game. Birthright has, Fates has no tutorial. Like, you can go into the menu and see the guides for things, but they know this is the sequel to a game everyone played. We're right. not going to bother tutorializing everything. Kind of like Majora's Mask, if you want to make that comparison again. Yeah. So Awakening is still where I would start. It's a better game overall, but you should definitely try Fates. It is a time investment. I think if you really want to get the full scope of this, you're going to have to play everything. And I'm excited to play everything. Like, I did not feel like burned out at the end of Birthright. I was excited to jump into Conquest, and I'm excited to keep playing. In part because Fire Emblem is... Uh, Fire Emblem is a great game. You can play the main maps. I often have a podcast on or something because I'm going to spend so much time strategizing yeah. and everything. I'll listen to the music for a couple rounds and then it's, okay, I, I have to put something else on or I do it while I watch TV. So I like it in that way. Um, but yeah, it's a really interesting game so far. A lot of things very good about it. Some things not as good, but it's interesting. And if nothing else, it does not lack for ambition and... They really kind of swung for the fences on this game in a lot of ways. And it seems like an experiment that, you know, they pulled off. Yeah. Uh, that paid off. And I wouldn't really want them to do this sort of thing again. I hope the next Fire Emblem is a reinvention once more. But, yeah, enjoying Fates. I'm interested to report on how Conquest goes and then Revelation when that comes out. Yeah, I'm really curious about Revelations and seeing hear your yeah. impressions on that. Yeah. Uh, the other thing is, I've paid a lot of money for this game so far, because I also bought the map pack, which is basically the season pass for DLC. Oh. <laughs> I did not dip my toes into the DLC on Awakening at all, because there was just way too much of it, and I did not buy it right when it came out, so I was just kind of confused by it. It's much better managed in this one, and there's going to be a weekly one or two new maps released every week, and they're not tied to the main game. So they're just, you go into the sub-DLC menu, you use your units at the point they are in the game, but other than that, it's kind of a separate thing, which I like, because then they can just tell yeah. a what-if story or just do something silly. And the first one was free, and it's, it's a crossover with Awakening, where you go through a dimensional portal and meet the characters from Awakening. Nice. And that was kind of fun. Um, 
I played another one. This week's one I played yesterday. Played a little bit of the other one today. They're okay. I don't think they're great. Some of the ones coming up, because they've released the schedule of what they're going to release, and some of them look pretty cool. One of them will involve Anna, who is the merchant character from Awakening, and you'll be able to import her into your game. Oh, so that could nice. be fun. Um, but it was the, the, the map pack was seventeen ninety nine, and I figured, I'm in for a penny and for a pound with this shit, so let's do it. <laughs> And, you know, one new map a week for, you know, a couple months, that could be fun, so. Yeah, I mean, it seems like there's a lot of money to spend on this game, but at the very least, like, it's all there. Like, it's worth it. It's not like buying a season pass for, like, Battlefield or something like that, where you're like, I guess I'm going to get some map packs. Like, I don't know what all this entails. It seems like, yeah, yeah, there's game there to get. How hard they've split Conquest and Birthright because they do feel now that I'm getting into Conquest unified enough that I personally, as a fan of the series, would never really want to play one without the other. And it would make more sense if they just had a game called Fire Emblem Fates that I could buy and have both. Yeah. But I, I, the sales strategy does make sense, and I don't think it's a ripoff or anything, especially because once you have one, you can get the other one half off. So they're not making you literally double dip, you know, yeah. half dip, kind of. Um, but it's still just a little awkward because it's not like they are completely different games, but they're also not completely connected games. You know, you, right. it's, it's, a, it's, it's unprecedented. Like, again, the closest comparison is like Pokemon, but they're identical games other than a couple of little things. Hey, man, Pokemon not- Red on GB Color looked red. Pokemon Blue on Game Boy Color looked blue. Yeah. So, totally different. 100, like, those colors are not the same color last time I checked. Are Fire yeah. Emblem Fates Birthright and Conquest, do, are they completely different colors? No, I didn't think so. Uh, they kind of do have a red-blue split in the color scheme, but yes, that's, that's a separate thing. Sure. I also say the artwork in these games is incredible. And part of why I sided with Hoshido and did Birthright right off the bat is Hoshido is very Japanese-oriented, and the music is You don't is say very... Hoshido is Japanese-inspired. Yes. It's, huh. it's very Japanese. The characters have these really cool designs. That's The classes are kind of interesting... One of the most disorienting things about Birthright to me is that it has basically no knights. Like, it has no huh. horseback characters for you yeah. to play as. And that's, like, years. my main class in the other Fire Emblem games. That's mostly preserved to Conquest. What Birthright has in its place is the ninja class, which is where they throw, like, shurikens and stuff. Sure. And they're pretty cool. But Birthright is pretty much all done on foot, and then Conquest has more horseback characters but not as many as the other ones like that's kind of one of the main classes in the others and it's yeah. really downplayed in fate yeah it's like when i played fire emblems i remember like the cavalier class being like yes. the your meat and potatoes like the, the core unit you use most of yep. the time and fates is different they've definitely shaken up class mechanics and that's something that we could get into but i won't today but it is interesting um and then the other thing i wanted to say about birthright was i don't know I had something really important to say. I'm sure. But I don't remember. And now I'm just trying to talk until I remember it. You're not going to remember it. No, I'm not going to remember it. I could talk more about Digimon's story while you try. No, that's okay. Um, What was it? This was important. This was my whole review of the games. This is bad. Did I have anything? Oh, okay. Technical level. The artwork and stuff. One of the... There are parts of this game that are just a technical marvel. And one of those is that if you've played... Awakening, how it happens is so you have your overall map, and that's done with kind of 2D sprites on a slightly 3D terrain, which is made more 3D with the 3DS effect turned on. Sure. And um, and then when you battle, it kind of goes black for a second, goes in, and you're on sort of a generic representation of that battlefield, and they fight. 
and it looks really cool and everything. What they've done in Fates, and I don't know how they got this working on the 3DS, it is insane. You have your terrain, and then when it does the, the, the fight, it zooms in on that point, and it is a 3D representation of that exact point in the terrain you're on. They've mapped oh, cool. in 3D every one of those maps. So if you are near a, like a wall and it is partially broken, you'll zoom in and that wall will be next to you in the correct 3D space, partially broken. I don't know how that works. That's, that's crazy. That's really cool. Yeah. yeah, because like you said, like all the other Fire Emblem games, it was like, oh, you're fighting in the woods, so here's the the forest background. Yes. It's like you're fighting on a plane, so here's the plane background. I mean, it's it's there's some kind of, obviously, algorithm going on that clearly connects these 2D and 3D planes, and it works yeah. really seamlessly. But, you know, and I would expect that more if this were like a major console game, but for the 3DS, like, it's pretty damn impressive, and... It's so seamless, I didn't even notice it for like halfway through my playthrough. And then someone online drew my attention to it, and I started looking for it, and it's like, that's incredible. Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah. So they're technically very accomplished games, super polished, you know, run at a good frame rate. The 3D works wonderfully, and it doesn't kill any of the performance. So definitely a cool set of games. So that's. I'm glad that the game you're playing is like technically superb and is not going to corrupt your save. Yes, it's fun. Yeah. All right. Well, anyway, I think that's probably it for this week. This wound up being a long one. Sean, we can't skip weeks. It doesn't work out well for us. Too much stuff piles up. It's like all that Digimon story would have been completely separate from Tomb Raider and The Division because I would not have played enough of it if we did weekly right. This will just redouble our efforts. Weekly or bust. Unless it like snows like clockwork once every week right when we're about to do the podcast and don't feel like doing it. We'll just have to like figure out the weather patterns and plan around that. Yeah. All right. Well, anyway, we've got lots of exciting stuff coming your way. The Pokemon podcast will probably be next week as our main topic. Before Batman v Superman comes out, I want to do a Batman and Superman episode, and I have some ideas for that. It's going to be really good. You you guys should be excited for it. I'm going to share those with Sean right now. You won't hear about them for a few weeks, but... In the meantime, everyone should just go play Digimon Story Cyber Sleuth. Yeah, I mean, fuck, man. I need to go Digivolve my War Gururumon into a Metal Gururumon because I, I can't stand not having a Metal Gururumon. You know what I'm saying? 